From the high rise in the Southeast Asian capital city of Manila, that would be of the Philippines, uh, I would wish you a good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it may be, wherever you are. Hi, everybody. This is Coast to Coast AM. I'm Art Bell, and I'm still laughing <laughs> because in the uh, in the section when you would normally be listening to the news, the network is running a series of uh, little promos, and one of them happens to be JC. And I was just remembering uh, the conversation I the last conversation I think I had, as a matter of fact, with JC. My God, it was a riot. Anyway, hi there. We almost had Stephen Greer here in the first hour. I'll tell you more about that in a moment, as well as read the story that prompted that. But his car broke down on the way to the program, on the way to a telephone where he could do the program. And I'm very sorry because I really, really wanted to interview him. But we will get to that, no doubt, in weeks ahead. Looking at the world, um, never, never that great a thing to do. Israel faces fierce battles with Hezbollah. Mideast diplomats were pressing Syria to stop backing uh, Hezbollah as the guerrillas fired more deadly rockets into Israel's third largest city Sunday. Israel faced tougher than expected ground battles, bombarded targets in southern Lebanon, hitting a convoy of refugees. Oops. Israel's defense minister said his country would accept an international force, perhaps and preferably from his point of view, NATO on its border after it uh, drives back or perhaps weakens Hezbollah. But his troops described the militants they encountered as smart, well-organized, and ruthless guerrilla fighters who do not appear afraid to die. Sniper attacks targeted two pickup trucks early Sunday on a busy highway, killing one person, wounding a second. This in Indiana. No, not Iraq. Indiana. One person wounding a second. Police asked other motorists who had been through the area to check their vehicles for bullet holes. That's great. Now you have to stop and check for bullet holes. Hours later, two more vehicles were struck by bullets on yet another four-lane highway about 100 miles away, but there was no immediate indication that the two cases might in some way be connected. So if you're in the Indiana area, you might want to pull over, check your tires uh, for air, and check your chassis for bullet holes. Then uh, then getting to Iraq, not good. Bombs killed more than 60 people, wounded more than 200 Sunday in Baghdad. And the northern oil center of Kirkuk, a dramatic escalation of violence there as the U.S. and Iraqi forces cracked down on Iraq's most feared Shiite militia. Uh, the prime minister there left uh, Sunday for talks in Washington this week with President Bush to discuss sectarian violence, which had risen sharply since Iraq's National Unity Government took office two months ago. Uh, Miss Puerto Rico did it, and uh, I did not get to see it over here. It may come to us here in the Philippines on a delayed basis, but an 18-year-old from Puerto Rico who hopes to someday star in U.S. and Latin American films was indeed crowned Sunday as Miss Universe 2006, the runner-up, a Japanese young lady. And uh, and and then and then the story: gas prices move past three dollars to an all-time high. Nationwide, gas prices hit an all-time high in the last two weeks, rising nearly two cents to just now over three dollars per gallon. That's an average nationwide higher in many places, according to a survey released on Sunday. The national average for self-serve regular stood at 
$3.1.5 a gallon Friday, up 1.98 cents in the last two weeks. Holy smokes. How in the world are people even making it from one place to another? All right. In a moment, I'm going to read you a story that had Stephen Greer on the way to the program tonight. But again, his car, not powered by any new technology, did not make it to a telephone in time to get on the program. I'm very sorry about that because when you, in a moment, hear the story, it's just going to blow your mind. So um, that coming up in a moment. I'm Art Bell. Just a couple of uh, items to run by you. One, uh, you'll notice on my webcam uh, this evening that I've got a photograph of, um, well, actually out my office window. And what is normally a little stream down below the condo here in Manila is now become uh, more like a river. And it's getting more like that all the time. We are experiencing Typhoon Glenda. Glenda, uh, Aaron says that uh, female typhoons are much more unpredictable something i think we all know in other words they will keep uh, uh they will just keep coming and coming and coming and coming with rain bands and certainly glenda has been doing that to us i think ultimately headed toward uh, uh, taiwan i hope but uh, glenda took a bit of a m- more of a west northwesterly course as opposed to northwest and that's going to put her a little close to us a closer to us unfortunately uh, so that's one and the other at the beginning of the program i wanted to mention i am still available by email you may email me at any of the traditional locations. That would be artbell at mindspring.com, A-R-T-B-E-L-L at mindspring.com, or artbell at AOL.com. Now, why was Stephen Greer headed to the program tonight? Easy answer. The following press release that I'm going to read to you, and hopefully we'll get him by next weekend to explain this, because it's a biggie. SETIs make alien contact? Question mark. According to Dr. Stephen Greer, yes, SETI has received multiple extraterrestrial signals. This news, he says, is confirmed by senior employees within the SETI program. Now, I suppose we could also try and get Seth uh, Shostak. He certainly is a senior employee in SETI. This is what Greer had to say at a recent ExoPolitics uh, conference. Quote, we have confirmed, and I'm not going to give the name yet, because we're trying to coax this guy out of the closet. But one of the senior people at the SETI project, which is the Carl Sagan Search for Extraterrestrial Project, has confirmed to the Disclosure Project that they have received multiple, I repeat, multiple extraterrestrial signals, Greer said. But that now they are getting external, probably NRO, or NSA jamming of those signals, and they are getting very frustrated. Greer continued... Question is, why hasn't the SETI project, funded by Paul Allen, the co-founder of Microsoft, come forward with this information? I'm a little uncomfortable even mentioning this, except for the fact that the public needs to know that this effort, which has received a great deal of mainstream media attention, is actually confirmed to us. It's been confirmed by two inside sources. That's two sources, folks, that they have received extraterrestrial signals and have confirmed them as being extraterrestrial and that they have now become increasing in frequency and number. 
Dr. Stephen Greer, of course, is head of the Disclosure Project, a nonprofit organization with almost now 500 former military, intelligence, and government employees who go on record about their various experiences with aliens and alien technology. Since the National Press Conference of 2001, viewed by millions of people across the globe, Stephen Greer has been referred to as the authority on the truth about extraterrestrials. For Greer to come out and make a statement of this magnitude, something is definitely up. We will wait patiently to see whether or not the SETI insiders take the stage and become whistleblowers for this monumental secret. Now, this is a non-trivial press release, to be sure. And we had Stephen Greer, as I just mentioned, all lined up to come on the show tonight and explain whatever might be the latest. However, his car bogged down. Now... From Hong Kong, not very far from me, it's about an hour and a half uh, plane flight uh, from me. And incidentally, that's a plane flight I'm going to make here pretty soon, go and visit uh, Hong Kong. Famous astrophysicist, I really want you to listen, all of you, I want you to listen very closely to this story because I want to talk about it. Famous astrophysicist Stephen Hawking said Thursday, I believe the previous, that the late Pope Paul John II once told scientists they should not study the beginning of the universe because it was the work of God. The British author who wrote the bestseller A Brief History of Time said that the Pope made the comments at a cosmology conference at the Vatican. Hawking, who didn't say when the meeting was held, quoted the Pope as saying it's okay to study the universe and where it began, but we should not inquire into the beginning itself because that was the moment of creation, and it was the work of God. Scientists then joked during a lecture in Hong Kong. I was glad he didn't realize I had presented a paper at the conference suggesting how the universe began. It didn't. I didn't fancy the thought of being handed over to the Inquisition like Galileo. <laughs> the church condemned Galileo in the 17th century for supporting the discovery that Earth did indeed revolve around the sun. Church teaching at the time placed Earth at the very center of the universe. Many people still think it's there, by the way. But in 1992, Pope uh, Pope Paul II issued a declaration saying the Church's denunciation of Galileo was an error resulting from tragic mutual incomprehension. I like that. That's a good line. I'm going to have to remember that. If you ever get in trouble with somebody, simply say it was an error resulting from tragic mutual incomprehension. Hawking is one of the best-known theoretical physicists of his generation. He has done groundbreaking research on black holes and the origin of the universe. He proposes that space and time have, indeed, no beginning and no end. And so this creates, I think, a very, very, very important question for all of us on the planet, no matter where you may be, my side, your side, whatever side. And that is... I've had scientist after scientist, great physicists, as you know on the program, some of the greatest minds of our time have come and spent uh, hours with us here on the air. And to the very uh, person, they all say that science is now beginning to get a grasp on virtually everything that has created us, everything that is, well, with the exception, perhaps, of, of that first instant that creation, that moment of creation or that moment of whatever it is that happened 
Now, now we're getting very close, and indeed, science is pressing forward to investigate that actual instant of creation, if that's what it was. Question is, should we should we not investigate that? Are we moving over the bounds? Should we not move into God's territory, even if science has the ability to look? Dare we look? Should we look? The scientists, I'm sure, would say, of course. (laughs) That's what science is, the investigation of the gigantic questions that we all want to know about. In this case, the moment of creation of all that is around us. Everything. The planets, all the suns, everything material, everything we can touch, the dimensions, all of it. Created in that instant, that brief, unmeasurable Instant when something smaller than a quark, something smaller than, well, we can't even really measure a quark yet, but something smaller than that which we can only imagine became everything. It's hard to imagine, and it's hard to imagine that any of it occurred short of a god, right? So I thought I would ask you all about that. I. I'm sure that uh, I wonder how a lot of you in the religious community would uh, would respond to that. In other words, obviously, if you believe in God, no, I, that's wrong. I shouldn't say that. It's not obvious. Even if you believe in God, you still might support the scientific inquiry into the moment of creation. Now, it's a little dangerous, yes, because perhaps science might suddenly discover that, well, It somehow was not God. Or maybe that question is not to be answered under any circumstances. I don't know, but the Pope said that. Stephen Hawking reflected on it, and I think all of us would do well to reflect on it too. So how would you answer that? Is it simply wrong to look into that instant in time? They're very close. They're right up, virtually right up to that very instant of creation. Every single scientist, though, says that uh, that's it. That's as far as they've been able to go. And some of you, I suppose, might rest easily and simply say, well, they can't do it. They're not going to be able to do it. They simply will not. Go ahead and let them try. They will not find out. On another subject, stepping into a research area marked by controversy and fraud, Harvard University scientists said Tuesday that they are trying to clone human embryos to create stem cells that they hope can be used one day to help conquer a host of diseases. Now, let's think about that one a little bit. They're trying to clone human embryos. Clone them. You know what that means, right? Taking a little bit of uh, cellular material from, I don't know, you or me, and then cloning a person in order to get embryos to get... uh, Stem cells. Now, what's the difference between taking stem cells from a human embryo and taking stem cells from a cloned human embryo? I'm not altogether sure. Dr. Stephen Hyman said, quote, we are convinced that work with embryonic stem cells holds enormous promise, end quote. I'm sure it does. The privately funded work is aimed at devising treatments for ailments like diabetes Lou Gehrig's disease, sickle cell anemia, leukemia, very serious diseases. Harvard is uh, only the second American university to announce its venture into the challenging politically charged research field. The University of California, San Francisco began efforts at embryo cloning 
a few years ago only to lose a top scientist to England. It has since resumed its work, but is not as far along as experiments already underway by the Harvard group. Now, we, of course, have lost many researchers to, uh, you know, to Europe. And the reasons for that are that we kind of put a, you know, a bit of a restriction on that kind of research. Uh, not a bit of a restriction, quite a, quite a heavy restriction. And our scientists become frustrated and they take deals elsewhere. So that's another one I'd like to ask you about. Is there any difference in your mind? I mean, we're talking about serious diseases. Add spinal cord injury to that. But is there any real difference in your mind between cloning a human embryo and then getting stem cells and just, you know, taking an aborted human fetus and getting stem cells? Maybe you would say, oh, yes, Art, there's a giant difference, of course. Because if you've got a cloned human, you don't have a real human. You don't have a human with a soul. You don't have a human with all the regular attributes of uh, humans born in the normal way. So, sure, it's okay. Maybe those at Harvard and at other prestigious uh, universities and such think it's okay. I don't know. I wonder if you think it's okay. Dolphins may be indeed a whole lot closer to humans than previously realized New research, get this, shows that they communicate by whistling out, prepare yourself, their own names. The evidence suggests that dolphins share the human ability to recognize themselves and other members of the same species as individuals with separate identities. Now, God, that's interesting. Separate identities. The whole, the whole notion... Let's think about this one. The whole notion of separate identities goes to the realization of self, right? To consciousness, doesn't it? What is consciousness? Consciousness is the understanding that you are. Am I correct? I think I'm correct. The understanding that you are. My understanding that I am, that I live, that I am part of all that is around me. So if a dolphin understands its own name, that means it understands that it is. Am I, am I wrong? The research on wild bottlenose dolphins will lead to a reassessment of their intelligence and social complexity, raising moral questions over how they ought to be treated The research was carried out by Vincent Janik of the Sea Mammal Research Unit at St. Andrews University, who's found that bottlenose dolphins seem to be among the uh, the animal world's quickest learners of new sounds. He said, each animal develops an individual distinctive signature whistle in the first few months of its life. That appears to be used in individual recognition. The research has its origin in the late 1960s when dolphin trainers first noticed that captive animals each had their own personal uh, repertoire of whistles. This prompted speculation that dolphins had their own language and might even have individual names. And once again, the way I think about it is that if they have names, then they understand that they are. In other words, they have consciousness, ladies and gentlemen, and if they do... They indeed ought to be treated a very uh, great deal differently than they presently are treated. Um, 
I said yesterday that uh, most things that are available in the United States are available here as well. Now, that is not entirely true. For example, one cannot get Krispy Kreme donuts here in the Philippines. Oh, sad day. We don't have them. However, they are coming. I just got a story sent by a listener. Uh, headline is Krispy Kreme Awards Development Rights for the Philippines. Krispy Kreme Donuts Incorporated announced today that it has awarded development rights for the Philippines to the Great American Donut Company, Inc., owned and operated by the principles of Max's, one of the Philippines' leading restaurant chains. There is a, a very good restaurant uh, here called Max's, which was originally actually designed for the uh, American GIs uh, who, who were at the time here in the Philippines and then quickly spread and became popular among Filipinos. Now Krispy Kreme has made a deal with Max's. So very shortly, we are going to be able to get Krispy Kreme. Donuts even here in the Philippines. All right, ladies and gentlemen, open lines coming up, so you know the numbers. If not, we will recite them for you shortly, and we'll do some open lines headed toward the top of the hour. From Manila, I'm Art Bell. Indeed, uh, here I am once again. Hi, everybody. We are having Typhoon Glenda, and it's really ripping around here. We're getting rain band after rain band after rain band. And uh, we were just talking about some of the uh, the screening software that I've got here. A number of people sent me an email about that. And they said, hey, Art, how do you answer telephone lines in the Philippines? And the answer is they sent me this incredibly wonderful software that allows me to simply push a button here and answer one of the lines. Well, it's a little flaky tonight, but it's not from the typhoon. Apparently, it's from uh, what's going on in California. And, of course, in California, you guys are getting slammed with more heat than you've had in a long time. As a matter of fact, so much heat that the power companies are beginning to get a little edgy about being able to provide power to all of you. At any rate, in a moment, uh, we will test the situation, see if everything works all right. That is coming right up. I'm Art Bell from Manila. Let me clear one other thing up, and that is um, tonight, incidentally, coming up uh, is um, a very interesting program. It concerns consciousness. Dean Radin will be here, and he was here during some of the consciousness experiments that we ran some time ago. The nine successful worrisome, (laughs) worrisome experiments that we ran. So he'll be here, and we'll talk about consciousness. Uh, Last night, I think I made a comment. That with the state of the world, the war is going on, Newt Gingrich's remark that we were in the first stages of World War III and all the rest of that, the um, uh, the situation with uh, the warming of the planet uh, being felt right now very heavily in California, elsewhere across the uh, North American continent, and in fact the entire world, uh, believe it or not, here in the Philippines, so that you know, they're also talking about global warming. It's a big issue here, and if it's a big issue here, my guess is it's a big issue all around the world. So my comment was, if things really got down to the nitty-gritty, if there was a big rock headed for us, and I've joked that I would, you know, I'd talk that one in, a number of people said, well, are you changing your mind, Art? Are you beginning to get to the point, Art, where you would indeed use it? Oh, of course I'd use it. If, it, if we were down to the fate of the world, 
I would indeed use that and anything else, any other tool at my disposal in the position I have to try and rectify whatever situation, you know, dire situation might be at hand. So, of course, I would uh, do that. Uh, I hope that clears it up. I just I, I won't tamper around um, and sort of play games with it. But uh, if need be, I would certainly use it. Uh, first time caller line. You are on the air, I think. Uh, hello, Steve. Good uh, morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, sir. Nice to talk to you. I'm I'm in Manila, the Philippines, specifically, and uh, it's afternoon here. How you doing, bud? Not too awfully bad. I've uh, first time I listened to you, I was on leave in the military twenty years ago, driving at night through Oklahoma, scanning the radio, and I came across one of the most fascinating radio programs I'd ever heard, and I've been hooked ever since. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. It is. It is. You know, you're exactly right. It is. A fascinating radio program. I don't know of any other radio program that on a regular basis deals with the kinds of questions that we do here. That's very true. It's, it's provocative. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's fun to listen to. It's, fun. it's just fun. Good. Uh, but you had uh, mentioned it uh, a little while ago, the uh, uh, scientists searching for the moment of creation. And, oh, yes. Uh, I think it's, uh, personally, I think it's a critical thing for science to do. Uh, I think if they were to find that moment of creation, as I told your screener, it would also validate uh, uh, Scripture in the second letter of Peter that uh, explains the end result of the Big Bang. In the second Peter, it talks about it. all the elements will be dissolved with a loud noise and fire. And, uh, but, Steve, let me stop yeah. you and just ask you one quick question. If instead of uh, validating what you believe uh, and have faith is true, it were to prove that there was some reason in physics to explain what happened other than God, how would you handle that? I think I would handle it by saying the greatest and uh, first physicist and scientist would be God himself. I, I, I just find it unfathomable that what we are today happened by chance. Uh, I think... Everything, scientific, uh, uh, physiological, uh, whatever realm someone wants to talk about, uh, mm-hmm. I think there has to be a uh, originator of that field. I agree with you, Steve. I, I think that um, I, I think it would not be a definitive answer, even if they came up with something that physics could say. Okay, here's here's exactly how it happened that still would it still would not say that there was not a hand of creation behind it i agree but who, wholeheartedly. But, but who knows <laughs> yeah well we, maybe we never will at this in this juncture but uh, so what do you think about the pope's statement that we ought not be looking at that do you think that uh, he's simply wrong yeah i do because uh, when i heard you talk about that uh, I didn't necessarily think of the Pope, but I thought about fundamentalists who look strictly at Scripture and say conclusively that the Earth is only 4,000 years old based on a historical, biblical timeline. And I think that, that viewpoint is just as absurd as the Pope saying we ought not to search for that, that moment of beginning. Do you think that the Pope's apparent fear of looking into this uh, is indicative of the possibility that he thinks we might find something that would not be agreeable with what we know of the Bible? Exactly, which is, you know, you're, you're, you're reflecting exactly on the Pope 
that imprisoned Galileo. Galileo discovered that we evolved around the sun and the sun not around the earth, and because of his scientific views and discoveries, it was contrary to the church's belief and imprisoned him there because of that. And I think this pope has the same mindset. It's a power issue. All right, Steve, uh, right from the middle of the Bible Belt, uh, that's Steve, and obviously he's not in fear of that sort of thing. Uh, That's a very small sample, of course, but uh, as I mentioned, right from the middle of the Bible Belt. Let's go to east of the Rockies, and hello there, you're on the air. Thank you for taking my call. This is Jeff coming to you from the blackout capital of St. Louis, Missouri right now. You say blackout? What do you mean? Uh, You haven't heard about the storms in St. Louis? I've heard about the storms raging across the central part of the U.S. Are you saying you're in full blackout right now? Oh, no, not full blackout. I'm just, I was just, uh, we were one of the few lucky ones that still had power. I see. But at the height of the out, out it was a 560,000 without, 500, 560,000, uh, those six, six, six figures. Uh, that'd be 560,000 volts. Is that what you mean? No, 560,000 homes without power. Homes without power. Okay. And businesses. Yeah, that's a lot. All right. Well, the weather is worsening all over the world. Uh, here in Southeast Asia, obviously, the typhoons are getting bigger, more frequent. That's happening with hurricanes uh, off the U.S. East Coast. And the weather is getting warmer, and all of that is pushing these damn storms to be bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah, and and uh, I wonder how many more years of that we can take. I don't know, but they called this one of the worst storms in 30 years. There you go. And then my, my main comment was about the Middle East. Yes, sir. Um, I do believe we are watching the players and chess boards set up for the thir- for a third world war. Not so you agree, you agree with Newt Gingrich? Yeah, but not necessar- necessarily. We're in it right now, but I think the players are being set up. I suppose you could certainly look at what's going on right now and say this looks an awful lot like what the Bible says will happen. Yeah, I so think you, as long, I think as long as Germany, I mean, Tel Aviv or Jerusalem is not hit, I think there's still a chance. Yeah, but they're getting pretty close. All, all yeah. right, buddy, thank you very much. I I very much appreciate the call and. The Israeli prime minister made, I think, a comment uh, about one of the Israeli cities the other day. He said that'll be the end of it if they hit that. So they're going to hit it if they can. We all know that. What the response from Israel would be, um, I, I certainly don't know, but uh, it would probably be quite severe. Are we are we in the first stages of World War Three? Do you believe Newt Gingrich is correct? West of the Rockies, you're on the air. Hello. Yeah, hi, Art. How you doing? I'm doing fine. Uh, it's good to hear your voice from over uh, in the Philippines there. Thank you. I just saw the, uh, Al Gore's movie last night, The uh, Inconvenient Truth. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, they brought it up because people called up in Lake County in California and, and uh, asked them to play it. You know, We figured they wouldn't have it up here at all. But, uh, boy, it's really compelling. You know, I learned some things from it that... Uh, I didn't realize China has, you know, higher fuel uh, mileage standards than we have in the United States right now. Right. And I'm looking at the thermometer, and uh, it's pretty scary. I mean, it feels like it's, uh, you know, it's something that we can change. I think Stephen Greer said we become accustomed to uh, the things that we can change and focus on things that, you know, are out of our realm pretty much. But I think, uh, and I think we should, uh, 
you know, pay attention to the, uh, you know, trying to change our our habits. It's a real inspiring movie. It's got a lot of good solutions, uh, and I would, you know, highly recommend it to anybody. But also, you know, if you wanted to do a prayer uh, ahead of time before it's too late, maybe maybe a group prayer for peace in the Middle East is really appropriate right now. Stephen Greer is... Stephen Greer, sir, is more of an optimist than I am. I, I would like to believe that uh, it could be rectified and changed. And I suppose there are th- small things at the margins that we can do that might help out. But I'll tell you, if I'm going to be dead flat honest with you, I, given a choice to pick, uh, we, can, we can stop all this or it's too late. I'm afraid I'm in the too late category. Yeah, I've gone along with you on that stuff before. I mean, I've talked to you a number of times. I had the uh, the dogs and the harmonica and the... Uh Gun guns thing we did that time. I'd rather be talking about stuff like that. But you you've got a stun move. gun right there, don't you? I heard it. That was it. Yeah, you, you want to hear it again? <laughs> you fire away. Go ahead. Can you can you talk? Can you sing for art? <laughs> uh, can you can you try it on your knee for me? Yeah, right. I, that, that, that was a good one. You read. Well, someone, I think it was you, the guy that just knocked everything to all the hell when he tried his wife. The way we bought for his wife. Yes, that That's was a, me. That should definitely uh, go on record. That one. <laughs> no, you got to see the movie. Honest, you know, I've 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 agreed with you on you know so many things, and I've been hooked to you too for decades and uh, almost decades. Um, it's uh, it's really worth seeing, and you really got me in the gut when you said what Newt said last night. The uh, the beginning, I'm feeling like it's it's out of control. But the movie, it all ties in together. It really does, and it's not that hard to change things in. in Little pie pieces add up to, you know, bringing the curve down and lowering CO2 emissions. It's not that hard to do. It's just that we are so engaged in this oil thing that uh, it's, you know, it's it's almost like they want, they really want to wreck the world, you know. It's for some reason, the car manufacturers aren't doing well in America, but they keep having high-mile cars. It's every, the rest of the world's going ahead of us, Art. America's gone, you know, not uh, our infrastructure and our just way of, of being seems to be, faded almost intentionally to be a failure it's it's absurd and seeing this movie makes it uh even you know just more clear i really know you probably don't want to see it but if you can see it i know you'll you'll be singing the well i'd love to see it uh i know that a lot of people kind of roll their eyes when it's al gore you're talking about Yeah, but he's so funny man i tell you he's engaging he seems like a completely different person in this movie and uh, well not that complete but i mean honestly he's like it's worth seeing it's not something to roll your eyes about it's I didn't think I'd even see. I'll wait till it comes out or whatever. But I think now is a good time, especially with the thermometer hitting. There's hundreds of thousands of people everywhere that are out of power. Not just uh, you know in the Midwest, uh, California, in the Bay Area. Hundreds of thousands of people have been out of power. There's stage right. one alert. The American Weather Association said that uh, the weather. Uh, they said that it's global warming. Like a week ago, I've never heard it again on the news. They said, well, they, they attribute it to global warming. So it's you know it, the truth is there. It's not it's it's scary. I mean, the, the, I don't know I what know. else to say. I'll, I'll let you get some other calls. It's really I'm so happy you're there and you've been able to move and and uh, start a new life. That is just fantastic. Thank you, my friend. Take care. Um, he's of course right. Now I am a bit more of a uh, a pessimist about all of this. I that does mean that I do not think that we should begin doing things as quickly as we can uh, to mitigate whatever is going to happen. We should have been doing that for a long time. We should have done it a long time ago. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we should stop now. It's just that really pressed to the wall, I, I try to always be as honest with my audience as I can. I look at what's going on here. 
course, we've got air problems here in the Philippines, um, and I've been to China, and if you could see what's going on in China right now, it would just scare the hell out of you. The amount of uh, factories that are cranking as hard as they can, the amount of uh, industry and trucks and cars that are on the road and the status of the air, Bangkok would be another example. The United States has actually done quite well in recent years compared to uh, a lot of, for example, Asian nations. So um, I suppose there is hope. Let's go to the first-time caller line. You're on the air. Hello. Hello, Art. Yes, sir. Hi. Uh, how are you? My, my name is Wayne from Gary. Indiana. Yes, Wayne. Yeah, the uh, first uh, time I ever uh, listened to this show was actually the night that you retired. I believe it was in December. <laughs> Boy, what a night to pick, huh? <laughs> yeah, a few years back. And uh, I also wanted to uh, uh, say that I was in the Philippines in 1996. It was, I think that was my second trip over to Asia. And every time I've been over there, I had a great time. Well, it is a wonderful country. Um, it's got some problems, of course, but the uh, the people here in the Philippines are the the most friendly, wonderful people you would ever want to meet. It, it's kind of um, time travel in more ways than one. Like right now, for example, it's Monday afternoon coming up on 2 o'clock in the afternoon here. So you and I are time traveling right now a little bit. But what I mean is, by time travel, I mean... When you're here, it's kind of like going back to the 1950s in the U.S., if you can imagine that. Oh, yes. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you about, have you gotten used to the, uh, the time that the sun rises and sets every day? My girlfriend is from the Philippines, and uh -huh. she tells me that uh, no, no matter what season it is, the sun rises at 6 in the morning and it sets at 6 p.m. Well, I'm not sure that's exactly true. It might be almost true. Um, I'll have to take a look at that. I'm certainly used to, I'm, I'm kind of on a a different schedule. You know, I used to be up till 3 or 4 or 5 or 6 in the morning, every single morning. But now I've kind of adjusted myself to be on a different schedule. And I'm generally up by about 9 o'clock in the morning here in the Philippines. Oh, uh, I've uh, been to Puerto Rico quite a bit, and uh, I was wondering if the weather patterns are the same over there, that uh, uh, you could be just a few feet away from where it's raining and you're completely dry, but say across the street it's a torrential rainstorm going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there, there is, thank you. There is some of that. Um, right now, of course, we're in the middle of a typhoon, so we're getting torrential rains, period. I mean, it is just really coming down out there. Nevertheless, uh, across the face of the world, we seem to be doing just fine. On the wild card line, you're on the air. Hello. Hi, Art. This is Blair in Sedona. Hey, hey Blair. Hey, uh, I remember when I talked with you uh, two years ago, you played that stop prying into government matters or dire consequences will resort just before Stephen Greer came on. I hope he's doing okay. But, I hope he's doing okay, too, and I would sure like to get him on the air to explain this press release. That is really, truly exciting stuff. Oh, I, I bet it is. Well, I, I run into the Drumvolo Melchizedek a lot here in Sedona, and he talks about on his Flower of Life about the 26,000-year cycle that our sun travels around the uh, galaxy. In 13,000 years, we head away from the center of the galaxy, and we fall asleep in consciousness of male paternal takes over to protect the clan, so to speak. Then for 13,000 years after the Kali Yuga, the dark night of the soul, we come into the light and we're led by the feminine. 
And uh, Drumvolo wrote a book called Living in the Heart, and he basically mm-hmm. is saying his argument is that we need to think more from the heart instead of the mind, because thinking through the mind causes this polarity consciousness of yes, no, good, bad. Okay, well, I have not been a great follower of his uh, for many years. I, I, I'm not sure what I'm in doubt about, but I just have not been a great follower. I, I sort of get his uh, email bulletins all the time. Um, nevertheless, he could be certainly right about those about those particular cycles. Well, at, yeah, at the very least, you know, with the sun going crazy here, we could be heading into a, a new a vibration, you know, in the solar system, and it's affecting the Earth. And it's one of those cycles, if it's 26,000 years, we've only been doing this for five, 6,000 years of uh, study in the Western society, so we don't even know about these new cycles yet. Well, you, you could be dead right about that as well. We certainly don't know the thousands of years of cycles of, uh, of our own Earth, do we? Listen, I, I've got to scoot. We're out of time here. It, uh, it's obvious to me that I'm going to have to do an open line show and just sit down and talk with all of you because there's a lot going on across the face of our globe. Coming up after the break, Dean Radin. Dean Radin is an amazing man. I'm Art Bell, not so amazing, and uh, almost getting all wet here in Manila where it's raging out there with Typhoon Glenda. We'll be right back. Think about it, folks. All the way, all the way from Southeast Asia. I mean, I'm on the other side of the globe. How exciting is this? I mean, it really is exciting. From one side of the world to the other side of the world, you and I are conversing as though I was still in Nevada. It's amazing. Only a company the size of mine, and uh, we are, of course, a very large company, could, uh, could possibly pull something off like this. This is amazing to be able to do a radio program, a talk radio program, from one side of the earth to the other side of the earth. That is no small feat, to be sure. Coming up in a moment, in a moment uh, Dean Radin, who earned a BSWE uh, magna cum laude in electrical engineering from the University of Massachusetts. He also has an MS in electrical engineering and a PhD in psychology, both from the University of Illinois. For 10 years, he conducted research on advanced telecommunication systems at AT&T, Bell Labs, and GTE Labs. Then, for the majority of the last 20 years, he has investigated psychic phenomena in academic and industrial positions. Dean served as a member of a classified research project investigating psychic phenomena for the U.S. government at SRI International, headed uh, PSI research programs in Silicon Valley for nearly, uh, not nearly, for two scientific and industrial think tanks. He's been senior scientist at the university, uh, make that the Institute of Noetic Sciences since 2001. He's also adjunct adjunct faculty at Sonoma State University in California. I'll make it through this. Dean's research has been featured in numerous magazines, and he has appeared on several radio and television programs, including this one. In addition, he is author of the book, The Conscious Universe. And uh, that we're going to talk quite a bit about The Conscious Universe and Entangled Minds, all coming up in a moment with Dean Radin. From the middle of Typhoon Glenda, well, actually not the middle, the periphery of Typhoon Glenda, I bid you uh, 
whatever time of day it is, wherever you happen to be. Hi. Uh, Dean Radin, welcome to the program. Thanks, Art. It's always good to be on your show. Well, it's been a while and a lot of water under under the bridge since we, we last spoke, Dean. I have mm-hmm. so many questions for you. Go ahead. Uh, okay. Dean, um, can you give us uh, and the audience a little bit of a, a sort of a, a 101 on what was going on at Princeton? The I, I presume the experiment is still going on. I think it's on the web. People can actually log on and see the little eggs chirping away. That mm-hmm. that experiment is still underway, correct? It's still going, yes. Yeah, you're talking you... about the, the Global Consciousness Project. Right. Uh, this is a, a worldwide project where we have random number generators. These are electronic circuits that uh, generate uh, zeros and ones. That's all they do, uh, randomly. And uh, they're, continu- they're operating 24-7, and every five minutes they send a summary of their data up to a server at Princeton. This has been running now for eight years, and... It's part of a experiment looking at the relationship between mind and matter, where the mind is the attention of the world, and the matter is this random network that we have circling the globe. All right. So these these little computers, uh, you call them, I think Princeton calls them eggs, right? Uh, are nothing more than, as you point out, random number generators. Are they really random, Dean? Uh, that would seem, it sounds like an easy job. But it it isn't all that easy, is it, to actually make it random? To make a truly random device is more difficult than it may seem. Uh Uh, It's true, because if if you have uh, some kind of circuit that is not shielded, for example, then if somebody brings a magnet or some other source of electromagnetism near it, it could influence the uh, generation of the bits. Exactly. These circuits are designed so that they're in metal cages. Uh, Metal cages are grounded to the PC. Uh, they operate on uh, the, the battery output or the controlled power supply from the PC and lots of other things to ensure that uh, it is as random as we know how to make. Okay. And these eggs are located um, in how many parts of the world? How many altogether? There are 65 now. There are actually a little bit more than that, but there's about 65 are active at any given time. Okay. Uh, they're typically attached to... Uh, we have hosts around the world, uh, people who have a, a PC which is attached to the Internet, and it's just a little device that sits in the back of the PC and just keeps going all day long. Okay. Um, spitting out random numbers. And then the key to all of this, I guess, is when uh, they start to become non-random. That has Meaning that has some kind of meaning, and I guess we're not altogether sure just yet what that meaning is, or are we? Well, the experiment was started as, as a result of testing a hypothesis. So we have at least some guidance on what we think we're doing. Uh, the hypothesis is that mind and matter are related in some way. We don't know whether mind gives rise to matter, or maybe matter gives rise to mind. It, it, but there is a relationship between the two. That's the hypothesis. And so if there is that hypothesis, and in essence you have the equivalent of an equation with some sort of equal sign between mind and matter. So if mind suddenly becomes very coherent, and the coherence we're talking about is all of the minds become aligned in some way, then we can assume that because of the equal sign between mind and matter, that matter must also 
become coherent in some way. So what we look for then are large-scale world events where we can infer that a, a large percentage of the world has become coherent by virtue of their attention on one particular event. And then we see whether or not the, the random network remains random or does it become patterned. All right. And you've got eight years under your belt now, uh, Princeton does, of doing this. Right. Uh, what I, I know in certain instances, uh, for example, 9-11, mm -hmm. you've got to remember a lot of the audience is not familiar with what we're talking about right mm -hmm. now because it's really been some time. So, uh, for example, at 9-11, I know that all of this is graphed. There's an actual graph that you can look at. Right. And uh, I think, was it 30 minutes or some period of time prior to 9-11, the graph just took off like... Uh, um, sort of a hockey stick. It took, um, it took off about two hours before the first plane hit the World Trade Center. <laughs> and there were a number of other anomalies. There's a, a very strange sequence of non-random events that occurred in the random network that day. It basically was not behaving randomly. And in fact, a way to, to describe uh, what happened is uh, with a tsunami detector, the, the way that it would work is you put a whole bunch of buoys scattered throughout the ocean and you monitor their height. And most of the time, the height, the average height of all the buoys is random because they're separated sometimes by thousands of miles and you wouldn't expect the heights to correlate. Right. But if a tsunami occurs, then the whole ocean rises and then drops again. And you'd be able to detect that by looking at these very large, slow correlations among the buoys. So... The Global Consciousness Project, then, in a metaphorical sense, is measuring uh, the movement of consciousness. It's the ocean of consciousness. Oh, that's a very good analogy. And so if a, a wave of attention comes along and pushes this entire ocean of consciousness, that's what we're detecting in, our, in the eggs. The egg, by the way, stands for electrogiogram, and it's oh. a, a little play on the term electroencephalogram. Uh -huh. So just as you put electrodes on somebody's head to make an electroencephalogram, in this case we put electrodes on Gaia's head, meaning the Earth, and we create an electrogiogram. That's where the word egg came from. All right. So, uh, and again, you mentioned that these are shielded very carefully against any external electromagnetic uh, influence of any sort, and that's understandable, but that also means that whatever is affecting these eggs is either beyond in frequency or affect electromagnetism? Well, it actually goes beyond uh, simple electromagnetic shielding because uh, there are other things that can affect uh, random output. For example, uh, component aging could affect it, temperature could affect it, uh, right. possibly proximity of a person, all kinds of things. So we need to rule that out as well. And the way that we rule out what might be called mundane environmental effects is by putting on the uh, the output of the of the raw random stream we put an, a logical XOR. This is an exclusive OR logic gate, and the, that is so the the raw output is matched against a series of alternating zeros and ones through this logic sequence. And what this does is it uh, it removes any mundane drift in the output. So the way to think of an egg, a better way to think of the egg is it's a black box which is designed in such a way that the output will be as theoretically uh, perfect randomness 
that's the way that we these things are devised. And the disadvantage of, of this kind of design is that it then becomes very difficult to know what's happening in terms of the physics. We don't really know what's happening in terms of the physics of the device, uh, of what's being pushed around to make it not random. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But the advantage of it is that we know that whatever is going on is not a normal physical influence. It's got to be something else. And by that, I... As uh, let me go back to what I said. Uh, in other words, with the kind of shielding you do, um, it, it's obvious then that whatever, whatever force—maybe that's the right word to use—is causing these eggs to become non-random in any given circumstance. It's probably not measurable from a an electromagnetic point of view. It's in some other what's the right word? Um, it's some other domain. Some other domain. Yeah. Thank you. That, that's, that's exactly right. In which case, the, the, the metaphor that I used, that there, it's as though the eggs are floating in a medium. And what we're looking at, I believe, is something like a distortion in the medium itself. So if, if as the mystics have said, if we live in a medium that is made of consciousness and the medium can be distorted in some way, mm. then the possibility arises that that is what we're actually detecting. Huh. That, God, that's fascinating. I read a story a little earlier indicating that uh, uh, they now have learned that dolphins, uh, Dean, actually understand each other's... They actually have names. They actually have names, and they're able to call each other by names. Now, after thinking about that a little bit, it seems to... I, I don't know how you measure what consciousness is, but I always thought that Perhaps self-awareness might be one of the, uh, you know, one of the the measuring sticks of consciousness. And right. if, if a dolphin knows its own name, my God, that means it's aware of itself, doesn't it? Sure. Yeah, sure. There, there so, are only, I think uh, chimpanzees also, we, we have a sense that they are aware of themselves because when they look in the mirror, they know that they're looking at themselves. Whereas if a, if a dog or a cat looks in the mirror, they, they won't react as though they know it's themselves. So that gives us a way of testing whether the, the creature has some sense of self-reflection. Okay, Dean. Then do, wouldn't that mean, for example, that when the eggs are reacting to something, whatever it might be, that they're reacting to a pool of consciousness that includes not only human beings? Well, we, we've actually been able to test that. Uh, the question all along has been, uh, could it be, for example, that Gaia, the, meaning the planet, has some kind of planetary awareness? Uh -huh. Or are we actually detecting the result of billions of minds? Is it us or is it the planet itself? Indeed. So we did figure out a way to test that. And the answer uh, before I, I'll, I'll tell you the, the outcome before I tell you how we did it. Uh, the answer looks like it's responding to us. And, and not necessarily to the planet at large. Okay, now I'm dying to know how you know that. Okay, so we have about eight years of data so far and uh, 204 events to date that we've looked at. These are all large-scale, major world events. That was a question I was going to ask. Uh, 204 right. measured events. Right, so the overall odds against chance as of about last month was 300,000 to 1. So we have... Wow pretty good uh, odds against chance that we're not dealing with a chance effect. There really is something going on. 
Right. Now, we notice that because there's so many different kinds of events that we've looked at, everything from 9-11 to planned meditations to the funeral of Pope John, Paul, and so on, large-scale events, that 51 of those events were what we call impulse events. These are things like 9-11 and also earthquakes, typically. They're very unexpected things that happen suddenly at a moment right. in time. Right. When you go back and look at those 51 events, what we saw first, we just eyeballed it. We saw that about two hours before the event, there was a rise in the overall network, meaning a, a, a change in order in the network about two hours before. So we, we first noticed this most clearly with 9-11, but as we got, went back and looked at these other impulse events, we kept seeing it again and again. So we did an overall analysis of these 51 events, and there's very strong evidence that two hours before the event that the whole network begins to change. Huh. So then... And is that, a, um, is that pretty much of a constant uh, in, in these 51 events, uh, Dean, that uh, just about two hours? It's not, it's, it's not exactly two hours in every case, but when you take the composite result of the 51 events, it, it's clear that around two hours you've, you've gone beyond chance. You're now in a statistically significant domain. Yeah, the implications of that are staggering, and that alone begs a million questions because obviously there's some sort of, um, maybe you'd be the one to answer it, not me, but there's some sort of uh, time element uh, involved here that, you know, on the face of it seems completely impossible. Right, but now it'll become more impossible because the, the purpose for creating this network to be running continuously is so if we came up with a new hypothesis, we can go back in the historical data and try something new. So what we came up with was uh, to go back and find every earthquake of Richter 6 or larger that was in a populated zone or a non-populated zone. And as you know, along the tectonic plates, there are earthquakes happening all the time, some of them around where people are, but a lot of them, there's nobody. Right. So we went back and looked in our random network to find out what was happening in the network around the time of the of earthquakes uh, before, during, and after. And what we found is overall, about two hours before earthquakes, only in populated zones does it begin to increice. Uh-huh. Uh, in areas where there is no population or just a very small population, you don't find that increase. So th- this is why we think that there, there's something important about the population in other words, lots and lots of people who suddenly pay attention to the earthquake that is related to this effect. Now, one possibility is that just as in the, the big tsunami that uh, happened uh, in December of '04, uh, the animals started running away. Well, maybe people do sense this. And we're, we're not used to We're not indigenous people who tend to live out in the islands, and we don't pay attention to it. But at some level some deeper level, we actually do sense that these events are coming up. And, and that's what we're picking up in this network. Um, do you think, again, that you're picking up actually uh, people, Dean, or do you think that, uh, oh, for example, you're getting more of a sense from what we all know the animals have more of a sense of this sort of thing than, than we do, so could it be coming from the animals? It's conceivable that it's coming from uh, anything which is conscious has consciousness, which includes animals, of course. Uh, we, we would like to be able to test, uh, for example, when we looked at Y2K, 
we found a big effect. And then we went back and looked at all of the other New Year's. And overall, there's the change of New Year in each time zone, you can see an effect. So if we could figure out when uh, the New Year's, Eve, New Year's occurs for dolphins, say, or if we, if we found out when whales celebrate something, uh, yes. we'd have a way of testing the difference between humans and animals, but so far we haven't figured out uh, how to do that. That's, that's really, the whole thing, of course, is incredibly uh, remarkable, and I'd, I'd really be interested in where you think the research goes from here. In other words, you've uh, pretty well, at 300,000 to 1, it seems like you've nailed down the fact that, hey, folks, this is not just some accident. This is absolutely real. Where does the research go from here? Well, one thing is to try to figure out uh, the difference in the response of the network for different kinds of events. Since we, we have events ranging from unexpected things like terrorism or earthquakes right. to planned things, we don't know yet uh, why some events create this effect and others don't. All right. All right. Uh, Dean, we're already at a break point, so hold tight. We'll be right back. Dean Radin is my guest. We're talking about one of my favorite things in the whole world, consciousness. From Manila in the Philippines, where a typhoon rages outside. I'm Art Bell, and this is Worldwide, Coast to Coast AM. Indeed, here I am. My guest is uh, Dr. Dean Radin, and he's already given us a kind of a 101 on what's going on at Princeton University. And, uh, my God, some of this is uh, pretty heady stuff. In other words, they've got these computers spitting out random numbers, and they really are random and protected against uh, any sort of electromagnetic uh, effect or whatever else might be out there. And then they have detected now, in a total of 200 measured events, 51 of them being events that nobody could have predicted, you know, like 9-11 or like an earthquake, something that you just possibly could not have known about. And the odds now, computed carefully, of this being a mistake are 300,000 to 1. In other words, this is real. Something is really going on. And that's what we're going to talk about this evening, as well as the issue of entangled minds. I'm sure Dean will have a lot to say about that. All coming up in a moment. Once again, Dr. Dean Radin. Uh, Dean, an obvious question, one that one certainly that has occurred to me is the following. Um, the egg action. Now, I've been up on the website, and I have a lot of people who email me, and they'll typically say, hey, Art, uh, the eggs are going totally berserk tonight. Now, that's a separate topic. We'll talk about that. But with regard to the egg action, <laughs> sorry for the phrase, uh, is it regional? In other words, uh, let's take the tsunami as an example in my part of the world over here right now. Mm -hmm. uh, were you able to observe a greater... Uh, non-randomness in the eggs that were reporting from this part of the world than you were, say, in North America or Europe? Uh, so far, the, the only event that we've looked at in any detail for localization was 9-11. And part of the reason why we're not looking at it in, still is because we, the network is not quite uh, large enough. We don't have enough points around the world in order to get a good topological map. 
But for 9-11, because of the importance of that date, what I did was uh, separated the eggs uh, first by hemisphere and then by continent and then by coast. And when you do that, you, you're able to actually trace down that the largest statistical deviation was the east coast of the United States. Wow. So there is some inkling that uh, that there is a, a way to localize. Because, I mean, we're always asked uh, if you have a two-hour warning that something's about to happen, th- that alone is not very useful. You need to know where. And then, right. of course, the next thing is you need to know what. So the where and the what are, are questions that are outstanding and are on the agenda for what's next. Okay, so the answer is it is probably regional, although 9-11 would be uh, not enough of a sample, I suppose, to proclaim that as science, but it looks like it might be regional. Yeah, it was an exploratory analysis, and, and it was promising enough to, uh, to have us go ahead and continue to look at that in more detail. All right. How much more funding, uh, and are, are you getting enough funding for this? I mean, this seems so incredibly important to me that the government um, and others ought to be all over it with funding. Uh, you can always use more funding. <laughs> so where are you with that? Are you beginning to get the attention of the mainstream scientific community now? Well, you, you asked what's next for this project. And, yes, and what, one of the things was to bring it uh, to the attention of the scientific community more, uh, more directly. So we've, we have published uh, papers in scientific journals, but I noticed on, your, on the Coast to Coast uh, webpage that the feature article is on a, about a um, conference on retrocausation. So we were actually at that. I was there. Roger Nelson was there. Uh, Richard Schaup was there. We're all analysts on this, pro- on this project. We went to this uh, meeting, which was at the University of San Diego, and it was part of the uh, American Association for the Advancement of Science, part of the regional conference. It was primarily for physicists talking about the issue of retrocausation, and Roger Nelson presented the results of this two-hour precursor event because it looks like a retrocausation event. Right. And this is one of the ways we're, we're reaching out to uh, primarily the physics community to uh, present an anomaly that physicists ought to, first of all, be interested in, second of all, uh, probably uh, can help us understand what's going on. So, okay. In, in uh, does, I'm sorry. Does this have anything to do, uh, it does, doesn't it, with entanglement, with entangled minds and with the whole, you know, the, you remember the IBM uh, experiment with uh, showing, um, God, what was it? Explain that IBM experiment where they actually... I think you may be talking about a a form of entanglement called ghost entanglement. Uh Uh, Entanglement refers to uh, a prediction from quantum theory, which says that uh, if any two particles interact, including photons, atoms, molecules, anything, uh, that when they separate, they remain connected in some form. It's as though they become a single object that just happens to be in two places at, at once. Well, this allows you to do a, a number of very strange effects uh, that, that look for all the world as a form of bilocation, in a sense. Uh, so what I think you may be referring to is that if you entangle uh, photons or electrons uh, and you have one of the entangled electrons, say, go through a mask that spells out IBM, and now you look where the other, what's happening to the other electrons, they will also spell out IBM. IBM. 
even That's though right. they I mean, that is what I'm talking about and honest to god I don't know what I'm talking about I it just seems that one is such a great mystery mm-hmm. with some similarities to the other that they seem excuse the expression entangled yeah yeah it it is uh it actually it, it'll make your brain hurt if you you try to really understand this stuff in detail and uh, it's one of the uh, curious things about quantum mechanics in general that most of the founders of quantum mechanics and Richard Feynman, the Nobel laureate, kept saying over and over again, here's what the mathematics says. This is what we can test in the lab, and entanglement is a very real thing. Uh, but if you, if you try to understand it in common sense terms, you will fail. It doesn't, yes. it doesn't make sense. In co- it's not common sense. It's way beyond common sense. Uh, and yet the state of the art is advancing so quickly that... Uh, the, it's being used already for secure communication, and there, people are well downstream in creating quantum computers using entanglement. Uh, so, would it, uh, There's a good question. Would it actually be secure communication? If you found a practical way to use entanglement for communication, would it really be, would it really be secure? It would. It would be as secure as anything we know how to make. Because, uh, I mean, the quantum cryptography is based, is based on this general notion that, uh, that, that essentially there is no key. The, the, only, the only person that could hold the other side of the key, which would break the code, is the other entangled photon, say. Now you're talking directly to the minds at NSA. And uh, if they wouldn't pony up some money for this, then they're just not paying attention, Dean. Well, the Global Consciousness Project is um, is probably related to entanglement because I think it's an important element of this. But uh, the fo- we have spoken to people uh, in the government who are interested in the predictive capability. Mm. But but so far, all of the funding the funding has been from private individuals who are simply interested in the project. So yes, we, but if you're talking about a form of communication that, for example, has no key, nor does it require a key, you're talking about something that would be beyond mildly interesting to organizations like the right. NSA and the NRO and all the rest of them. But that, that level of research is getting an enormous amount of funding. That, that's bet. getting government funding and, and uh, industry funding. That's, that's major and mainstream. Uh, what we're talking about is uh, taking these ideas and pushing it a little bit to see what role does it play with consciousness. And that's when we start stepping on controversial ground. Mm-hmm. All right. I want to read you something that a listener sent prior to your coming on the air tonight. I recently read Dr. Radin's much-needed book, Entangled Minds. Dr. Radin reviewed experiments that look into the future by a few seconds. Um, that is... Uh, RNGs, for example, as well as experiments that have uh, a dependence on space distance, ESP, card guessing, and RNGs. Prophecy, such as the Bible contains, is not bounded by time and distance. The prophecies of the Bible are supposed to come from a source that is outside of and not limited by ether. Please ask Dr. Radin to comment on the notion that being stuck in time and space, as we are, like flies on a coil of sticky tape, could explain the graduated uh, by time and space success of the experiments. Hmm. That, that question ended in a way that I didn't think it was going to go. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought the question was going to ask uh, whether it's conceivable that uh, prophecies are genuine. 
given that what we know, what we can see in the laboratory now, in which case the answer is yes. Uh, we don't know how far in the future the prophecy can go, because in the lab we've generally been limited to matters of seconds or minutes so far. Right. But right. If, he noted that. Uh, he, I, I think, as a matter of faith, he assumes that the biblical prophecy is accurate. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see, again, please ask Dr. Rayton comment on the notion that being stuck in time and space as we are like flies on a coil of sticky tape could explain the graduated by time and space success of the experiments. I, I'm not sure that I understand what that question is. How would okay. you interpret that? Um, I, I was I was really hoping that you w- would easily interpret that because I was wondering about it myself. So no, I, I, I got stuck on the sticky paper, and after that, I, I couldn't understand it. It's okay. a nice metaphor. Um, is, is it a good metaphor uh, that we're kind of stuck uh, like flies on a, a bit of a coil of sticky tape in time? Well, we are, but only in the sense of, of an illusion. You know, our perceptions of reality are a construction. We, we don't see the world the way the world actually is. We see the world the way that we construct the world. And there's this whole series of experiments. I talk about this a little bit in, in the book, Entangled Minds, that, that show very dramatically that uh, the way that we experience the world, both in time and in space, really is a construction. And you can do very slight changes to your expectations about what you're going to see, and you will see completely different things. All right. Um... You're sort of in the predictive, uh, the looking at and the predictive stages of this whole experiment uh, in looking at world events and the correlation with what the eggs report and all the rest of it. Uh, Dean, is it possible, and I know that you're very well aware of the experiments that I did, about nine of them, and they all worked out positively. We actually did create, it seems, rain. We did uh, affect people's health. We did, uh, we did certainly affect the weather, and um, it, it kind of scared me. So is it possible that mass consciousness is something that can not only be monitored uh, for predictive effect, I guess, or pre- predictive um, ability, but also can be used in a proactive manner, as I think I demonstrated in those experiments? Yeah, can can uh, can you create a tsunami in the, in the ocean of consciousness by having everybody jump at the same time? Yikes! Um, I think the answer is yes, but just as uh, with the the metaphor that I just used, there there are unintended consequences, uh-huh. and that's the tricky bit because we, yeah. we, we don't really know uh, the the details of what we're dealing with. Um, we, we don't know, for example, that if you wanted to rain in a certain place and you get a couple million people to agree to that and to intend it, that you may well get rain, but we're, we're dealing with a complex weather system and you may create a, a drought somewhere as a result. Mm-hmm. Or a flood. Or a flood. Yeah, that's, that's exactly, what, of course, what stopped me. And, uh, and I finally realized, you know, what the hell am I doing? However, the, the success, I think, of the nine experiments, that's not a gigantic uh, number, but it was, it was amazing, and then it began to scare me a little bit. And as you know, several years ago, I stopped doing it. Now, if there was some sort of global threat, and we're not all, all, all that far away from that kind of thing, mm-hmm. Uh, whether you want to talk about human behavior or you want to talk about the current state of the planet 
and uh, and what's going on with the warming and all the rest of that, there may come a time when it may be worth trying because otherwise we're going to be in a lot of trouble and I don't know anything else that can affect systems like the weather and the rest of it other than this. It's probably true. I mean, if we, especially in terms of global warming, if we go beyond uh, the uh, stage of last resort, then we have nothing to lose at that point. My uh, feeling exactly. When it comes to something like peace, you know, like if, if everyone prayed for peace in the Middle East, uh, it's, it'd have to be very carefully constructed on what that means, because peace means different things to different people. And, right. you know, what, one way of thinking of peace is as though we're, we're spreading mental valium over the entire Middle East and everyone just calms down. Oh, no, very well said. It, it may well be, for example, uh, Dean, that peace to a Palestinian might be the eradication of Israel. Exactly. So do we mean uh, creating a sense of peace within each individual or, or something larger than that? It, it would just have to be thought out very carefully before an effort was made. Now, I know that there are dozens, maybe hundreds of groups around the world that are praying for peace. But I, my guess is that if you imagine that we're, we're all in this giant ocean of consciousness, that hundreds of groups are, are doing the equivalent of throwing boulders in the ocean. And they will create ripples, but the ripples will tend to all wash each other out. Because Cancel they're, each other out, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're not being done at the same time, and they're not in the same wavelength and all the rest. All right. How much do we know, Dean? about uh, the effect of one mind versus 100 versus 1,000 versus 5 million. I, I mean, you know, I've got the ability to perhaps, I, I, I don't want to use the word manipulate, but get the cooperation of uh, perhaps millions of minds toward mm -hmm. one single effort. So how much do we know about the difference? I think the, the data so far suggests that it's not so much the number as the coherence of the number. So... Uh, for example, if, if you have 5 million people and they're somehow able to do the same thing at the same time and they're really on the same wavelength, their intentions are aligned, right. you get a really big effect. But if you have uh, a couple million people and half of them are thinking, well, I don't know about this, and the other half are thinking, you know, they're, they're all, uh, their minds are scattered in some way, you could very well get a complete wash and get absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. So the reason I say this is because uh, these field consciousness experiments, that, that's what the Global Consciousness Project is. It's, a, it's looking at consciousness as a field, in a sense. This has been going on for about a decade now, and they started in small groups, like a group of meditators. Uh, and and it, it does appear as though the, it's the coherence of the group, the group mind. Sometimes it's called like being in the zone. When a group can be in the zone or a sports team is completely in alignment, magic happens. You know, the, uh, in the Olympics, I forget what year it was, but the, the U.S. hockey team won the Olympics, and they weren't expected to win at all. Against all odds, and you're exactly, exactly right. There's yeah. a kind of a zone. There's a zone. Even in, in the work I do, even in the work I do, Dean, I can feel it. There's a certain time when I get in a certain place, and I know I can do no wrong. Right. And if, if, if that level of coherence in a group can create magic. In fact, I was interviewed for a documentary a little while ago by uh, people from Boston who are looking into the possibility that the Red Sox won the World Series because of this incredible zone 
that that Red Sox fans got into when they saw the possibility of actually winning the pennant and then winning the, the World Series. The whole city just became like one giant mind. Here, here. Uh, what a wonderful um, example that is. I mean, again, talk about against all odds. It was just impossible. But night after night, the impossible kept happening. And yeah. you think it might have been that, a whole city in such alignment in their thinking. Well, there have been a lot of studies looking at whether there is a home team advantage. And it is very, very clear. The statistics are very clear on this, that there is a home team advantage. So that's just on a very small scale. That, you know, the, the home crowd can, helps somehow, and there's some normal psychological reasons, but maybe it goes beyond that. The home crowd will help. And so if you now have a building coherence in a place like Boston and surrounding areas, could they help the team? I think the answer is yes. Oh, I think clearly it is. In fact, I think the odds makers in Las Vegas, as a general rule, give about three points, and they don't give things for nothing, three mm -hmm. points uh, to a team for a home, home field advantage. Something That's like right. that is fairly normal. So it's real. It's real, yeah. So what, what about a home team advantage for the entire planet? Uh, I, I think you're, you're right when you said earlier that if there was something that was threatening the entire globe and yes. every, everybody understood it, uh, and now with modern media, we can get we can get an enormous number of people all thinking the same thoughts at the same time. I, I think we would we could see the equivalent of a miracle of a home team advantage for the planet. All for right, planet. Dean, hold tight. We're we're up here at the top of the hour. God, this is fascinating stuff. Dean Radin, Doctor Dean Radin, is my guest. We're talking about consciousness, and we're talking about really beginning to talk about doing something about it all and we'll we'll pick up on that exact point when we get back from manila in the philippines but it really doesn't matter i'm art bell it is indeed hi everybody from manila in the philippines southeast asia i am art bell and that song just said there are times when all the world's asleep well not really but there are indeed times when uh, very large portions of the world are asleep, and I wonder if that makes any difference at all, or if the, if the conscious mind, at times when it is awake, when it really is conscious, is producing a different result than when it's asleep. I suppose you could look at the eggs on one side of the world, where mainly everybody's asleep at a certain hour, versus uh, the eggs on the other side of the world. I don't know. That's a question we'll ask. The whole thing is fascinating. Talk about a home team advantage. What happened in Boston was nigh on to impossible, and yet it happened, as Dean pointed out, kind of a home team. We'll explore all of this uh, further with Dean Radin in a moment. Once again, Dr. Dean Radin. Uh, Dr. Radin, Holly in Georgia sends the following fast blast, and it's exactly my concern. It says, hi, Art. So basically, if we get everyone on the planet convinced that global warming is causing the planet to get hotter, and everyone is in the same place and worried all together, might it not be that we are heating the place up simply by thinking about it? Uh, we don't know how far to push, how far the push can go. In other words, uh, all of the effects that we see in the Global Consciousness Project are 
um, are changes in order, changes in, in, um, in statistical order. So these are not gigantic. We're not pushing mountains around. We're pushing around order. Uh, conceivably, if uh, given that there's the, the butterfly of effect in weather, the chaotic effects in the weather, uh, it may be the case that all of the concern would change weather patterns in some way. But weather would actually warm up the planet, literally. That's, that's still un, unknown. Well, it may be unknown, but I, I've had this subtle feeling for some time that ultimately um, consciousness, directed consciousness, may be a greater power than atomic energy. I, I don't know. I've just had that, that, that feeling. And so what Holly says does concern me. In other words, science, most of science is now becoming convinced. For a long time it was very controversial about whether or not we were actually getting global warming. Mm-hmm. That's kind of settling down to almost everybody believing it. And as more and more scientists come out with declarations that, yes, it's happening, yes, it's speeding up faster than we thought, then more and more people begin believing that. And perhaps like me, they're a little pessimistic, and there you go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it could feed on itself. It's possible. But as I said, whether uh, whether the minds of people can cause the world literally to heat up uh, that that's not so clear to me. Uh, we can probably or conversely whether we could cause it to cool down. Yeah, I think we we uh, collectively we can tweak it. We can do we can push it in various ways, but uh, for very large scale effects like pushing an asteroid out of orbit or something right. of that sort, uh, that I'm not so sure about. Well, I don't think we've given that one a try yet, um, and I hope we don't have to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there may come a time, uh, either with the global warming, which is beginning to get rather serious. I mean, look at what's going on, on in North America right now. West Coast of the U.S. are having uh, power brownouts, and everybody's worried about the power and the temperatures and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. It's beginning to get rather serious, and if too many more years go by and it keeps increasing at the present rate, it's going to get very serious. Yeah. Yeah, and the, perhaps one of the biggest dangers is that things change slowly enough. I mean, even over the course of a couple of years, that's extremely fast in geological time. It but, sure is. But on the, on the human day-to-day work, it's not that fast. Uh, but we could find ourselves in an extremely serious trouble in a couple of years, and, and then we have to do something. Yeah, and, exactly. Exactly. That's what I'm concerned about. So it may come to the point where... Either myself or whoever is sitting in this chair may decide that it needs to be used because otherwise there's going to be mass trouble. Anyway, anyway getting back to uh, uh, something else I mentioned, uh, in that little piece of bumper music, All the World's Asleep. Well, of course, that doesn't occur. But indeed, uh, about half the world at any given time probably is asleep. So right. I wonder if there's uh, – have you looked at all at, 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 you know, at that? We have, yeah, and uh, the easiest way to look at that in the Global Consciousness Project uh, was by looking at New Year's, because uh, New Year's occurs in each time zone, uh, and there's, uh, I forget if there's either 36 or 38 time zones, because there are a number of them are on the half hour, and anyway, you can uh, separate the world into the uh, waking half and the sleeping half. Uh, The sleeping half, in terms of time zones, actually occurs mostly over the Pacific Ocean, because in terms of population, uh, there, there's very, very little population on the portion of the Earth that covers the Pacific Ocean. In fact, from space, you can approach the planet and almost see only water if you come at it at the right angle. Right. 
So uh, we can separate then and look for uh, what happens at the stroke of midnight in the time zones where there are people versus time zones with no people, and basically all of the effect is occurring uh, in the time zones with people. Wow. So, so that's... What? That suggests is that, is that really true? You said basically most of the effect. I mean, that's very significant. Yeah, yeah. I, I have a graph of that in uh, in the book Entangled Minds. All right. By now, a lot of people are they're going to want to get their hands on your book. So, how do they do? How? how? Uh, they can uh, buy it off of your website. They'll end up on Amazon, or they can go to entanglemindscom and they'll still end up at Amazon or anywhere. I was in an airport the other day, and I saw it in an airport bookstore. Oh, really? Yeah, so that's all all sources where you can buy books. Well, I'll tell you, when you see it in an airport bookstore, you know you've made it. Yeah, that was exciting. I'm sure it spread a big smile across your face to see mm -hmm. that. Um, it's, I believe, our future, and I sure would like to see more money and more effort uh, being poured into this. You, you made a statement a little bit earlier that kind of blew me away. You said that um, uh, entangled communication or communication using this method is now mainstream. Mm. Well, I didn't know that, Dean, so um, tell me more. Well, I'm, I'm not an expert in, the, uh, in quantum cryptography uh, or in quantum computing, but I do know that uh, certainly the U.S. government and, and most of the major computer manufacturers are very heavily investing in the next generation of computers, which are going to be quantum computers. And the reason why uh, is because a quantum computer can operate at uh, thousands to millions of times faster than current technologies. Huh. Uh, they compute not simply zeros and ones, but they, in, a, in effect, they... They compute the whole range of possible answers all at once because they're working on wave-like structures rather than particle-like structures. So, so a quantum computer then, Dean, would be able to, for example, give me an idea of the, the difference in what a quantum computer would do versus the fastest we've got at the moment. Um, I actually have a quote somewhere in my book. I, I won't look it up at the moment, but it, it's something like uh, a, a desktop quantum computer would be able to out-calculate every existing computer on the planet, just one. Wow. We're, we're dealing with uh, such a, a significant increase in computing power from a, uh, the equivalent of a desktop quantum computer that everyone sees that as the obvious uh, goal in mind. Uh, and, and actually, it is because of the interest in creating such a computer that uh, advancements in entanglement research have advanced so quickly as well. And, right. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm a real fan of Google, uh, Dean. You can mm -hmm. damn near get anything answered you want in the world on Google. Right. But a quantum, a quantum computer, uh, one of the things a quantum computer might be able to do, correct me if I'm wrong, is to look elsewhere for answers to questions. And by, by that I mean look into time or even into another dimension for the answer to a question. Or is that too far out in left field? Uh, I don't know about another dimension, but uh, possibility of looking through space and time. Uh -huh. I mean, from, you know, from a, a conventional point of view, I, I don't think you're going to get anybody working on quantum computers to admit that. 
but but I I do work in that field, and uh, since quantum mechanics is not limited by space and time in the usual ways, uh, I think it is conceivable that a quantum computer might be um, possible to build that is able to look through time. I mean, we know that we can do it. We we can do it, and there, there are people who believe that the brain essentially is a type of quantum computer. It behaves a lot more like a quantum device than it does like a classical computer. Uh, and we know through experiments uh, that I've done and other people have done that it is possible in the lab to show that we can respond about three to five seconds before a future event. Now, this is response in an unconscious way. It's your body responding before your mind's aware of it. Uh, but we can demonstrate that now in the laboratory. God, that's incredible. Um, so uh, would you expect that um, as it's developed, a quantum computer uh, would actually quite quickly suppress, or suppress, uh, surpass the human brain in its, and, and perhaps even uh, approach what we consider to be some form of consciousness? I think it very well might, yes. Really? Yeah. Uh, the thing is that it, if if we can design a brain, essentially, which is what a, uh, I think what a quantum computer will eventually be, uh, once it, it becomes smart enough to be able to start designing itself, it will it will essentially evolve probably hundreds of thousands of times faster than we're evolving. In which case, the you can almost imagine that the instant that the first quantum computer comes online, it will explode in terms of its intelligence and immediately become a, a whole lot more intelligent than anybody who has ever lived on Earth. And Isn't beyond that, that potentially terribly dangerous? Yeah, yeah, it could be dangerous. I mean, it, <laughs> it, it could decide with... There are a lot of science fiction stories based on this general notion that the computers yes. decide that uh, we are an annoyance and uh, we have to go away now. Uh-huh. Either an annoyance or uh, we're ultimately um, perhaps suicidal or something. In other words, uh, even if it were uh, very carefully designed uh, to do the very best for man, mm -hmm. uh, the best for man might turn out to be something that we're not all that pleased with. Right. One would hope that you can build into such a thing the uh, Asimov's three laws of robotics. But as Asimov wrote again and again, there, there are all kinds of tricks involved even in his three laws and reasons why computers would do something that doesn't make logical sense from, from our point of view. So it is a risk. But, you know, any advanced form of science is a risk. It's a risk to study consciousness deeply because, as you said, it is, I think it's very likely the case that uh, a significant understanding of consciousness would be far more powerful than atomic energy. Mm -hmm. Because if it turns out that consciousness actually is more fundamental than what we think of as the fundamental physical forces, mm -hmm. then we're, we're dealing with some element of creation itself, and that becomes a little tricky. Um, that actually takes me back to something uh, very much earlier in the show, and I don't know if you heard the, you know, the first hour or not, but uh, the Pope actually... Uh, made mention of the fact that he would rather not see us investigate the actual moment of creation, mm -hmm. that there is uh, uh, there's great danger from his point of view in our investigating that moment of creation. Anything after that, as far as the Pope is concerned, is fine. But investigating the actual moment of creation, he says, is a no-no. I, I take it you would not agree with that point of view. It's... Or, or do you? 
Well, no, no, I guess I, I don't. I mean, as, as a scientist, I'm, I'm driven by curiosity. I, I always would rather know. I, I'd rather be cautious. And if there was uh, any inkling that uh, opening a door is the bad thing to do, uh, I, I would think very hard about opening that door. But so far, uh, we, we've seemed to done, we've, we've done okay. And I think that in general, it's better to know than not to know. I suppose. Um, I, I don't want to crash any websites, but uh, we should make the bulk of the audience know they can actually go and look at these eggs. They can actually log on to a website, mm-hmm. and they can watch these eggs. There's little kind of little noises associated with the uh, the eggs reaction from different parts of the world, and they're they're listed, and there's little dings and dongs, and Every now and then they do go crazy, and I have a lot of people in the audience who watch these eggs, and I'll get emails saying, oh, my God, Art, they're going crazy. Mm-hmm. Is it worthy? Is it worth uh, doing that? In other words, is it worth sitting there and watching what's going on or monitoring what's going on and then looking for an event? Well, of course, you, you can do that, uh, but that's not the way that the project is run uh, because we're dealing with a large random system, there will be times when just completely by chance that all of the eggs will become coherent and you'll get a, a big spike. Uh, but that's not, we don't do that. I mean, we don't do that kind of analysis because it's too easy to read in that something is happening. And we, we, do, a, we do it from the other direction where we first look at a world event and then we look at the data associated with that world event. Mm-hmm. So you're still looking at it all historically, really. Uh, so yeah. Mike in Auburn, Washington, who asks the obvious, uh, ask your guest if any specific predictions have been made by these eggs. And, of course, the answer to that is no, correct? No, that's correct. Yeah. Uh, do you ever think that the research into all of this, Dean, could get to the point where something more specific than you can now look at could be discerned? I think almost certainly. When Roger Nelson gave this talk at this physics symposium, uh, one of his last slides said that uh, not only is this a unique database, that nothing like this has ever been created before, uh, but we were surprised uh, when Roger and a physicist named Peter Bansell were the ones who who went back in the database, looked at the earthquakes, and found this two-hour precursor. They were very surprised to see that. So this is just one of probably lots of surprises that await us when we have enough analysts looking at the data and to try to understand what it's trying to tell us. In other words, it's it's as though we we have a lot of data, uh, we can correlate it against all kinds of things, stock market and you name it. Uh, We expect that there are many surprises waiting because any time a new instrument is developed, and this essentially is a new type of instrument, it reveals a new element of the world, a new element of reality, and it opens a new door of knowledge. So it's waiting for us to go through it, and we just need more people to go through it who are able to analyze it. You're sure right about that. Terry in Wenatchee, Washington, says, Remember the Apollo 13 incident? Were those people in Cape Canaveral, Florida, that literally stopped and prayed in public for the astronauts? The whole city came to a stop for a significant period of time, with everyone focusing on the astronauts' safe return. Now, I don't know if your project goes back that far. I suspect it does not. Uh, it does not, but, but coincidentally, the person in charge of bringing Apollo 13 back was Edgar Mitchell. 
Mm-hmm. Edgar Mitchell is the founder of the Institute of Noetic Sciences. And I've spoken to him about this, and he, he feels that the, the actual probability of Apollo 13 coming back with the astronauts alive was very close to zero. There were just so many things that could have gone wrong. And it wasn't just the, Cape Canaveral that was praying. The whole world was alerted and was praying. Correct. Correct. He felt that it was the combined will of the world that made a, a near-zero probability actually uh, actually happen. That, that it basically was a kind of a probabilistic miracle that the astronauts were able to land safely on Earth. Kind of like Boston. In a, in a sense, yes, yes. Uh, the uh, we know how dangerous it is to take any uh, shuttle or a, any spacecraft back into orbit, as as we know from recent events. Uh, it's, it's easy to just burn up, and yet these guys who were in a very seriously crippled uh, spacecraft managed not only to swing around the moon but to actually make it back in one piece. That that Against is incredible. All odds, yeah, absolutely incredible. This whole thing is absolute. This whole field of study is absolutely incredible, and. It's so exciting. I, I I don't see how you can keep from just sort of getting overexcited about the whole thing. <laughs> I'm sure you well, have your moments. Occasionally, yeah. I mean, it uh, it, it is my daily work, so I, I, I'm not going to say I'm blasé about it, but uh, I I find it certainly uh, compelling enough to continue in in the face of uh, a lot of scientists who are not so happy with it. Uh, oh. Oh, that, that alone is a very interesting question. You say a lot of scientists are not that happy about it? Well, there's, there's an element of, of strong conservatism in science uh, in, which, in which this topic is considered to be uh, too close to religion to be, or maybe to spirituality to be comfortable. <laughs> All right. Uh, hold on, Dean. We're, we're at a, uh, a break point here. So a lot of science out there is not so happy about this. Why? Because it's getting a little too close to religion, to faith. <laughs> Isn't that fascinating? I didn't know that there was sort of another camp out there on this consciousness business from Manila in the Philippines, Southeast Asia. I'm Art Bell. Dean Radin, Dr. Dean Radin is my guest. We're talking about consciousness, and I guess we're also really talking about intent, and I've got a question about intent in a moment, and also the fact that uh, science is apparently not so happy, or some of science is not so happy about the work that uh, Dean is doing and the work going on at uh, Princeton. It is very controversial, and I suppose that in a way, as he mentioned, it approaches, it kind of approaches religion. At any rate, we'll ask more about that. We'll also take calls at the top of the hour, all coming up in a moment. On this program over the years, I've asked many doctors and many scientists if they believe in God or not. And I suppose I could ask Dean the same question. I think, though, the answer I'd get from Dean would not be such an affirmative, uh, well, long pause and then no. Dean, uh, why not? Let me give it a try. No, I wouldn't say no. I would say I'm agnostic. Mm-hmm. And, uh, one, of the, one of the things that, in a sense, is required if you're, if you're going to call yourself a scientist, 
is skepticism. And skepticism in its, in its true sense simply means doubt, that you are open-minded, but you doubt until you have some reason to, to change the doubt into a belief. For me, the belief uh, is based on data. I, I believe that some psychic effects are real because I see them often enough in the laboratory and I know the conditions under which I've seen them. But at the same token, you, you don't want to be so open-minded that your brains fall out. <laughs> right. So the, the, uh, the, the scientists that I'm talking about who don't like this topic are, uh, there are, of course, professional skeptical societies, but I don't really regard them as true skeptics. Uh, people who specialize in debunking and no, they're professional. They're professional skeptics, Dean. Well, well, this is what I mean, that they're, they're deniers and mm-hmm. debunkers as opposed mm-hmm. to people who are a- actually asking the hard questions and be willing to accept it if they're true. Right. Uh, but but what, let's move back to mainstream science. You're saying that some of mainstream science is not all that pleased with this line of uh, uh, research. And, 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 you know, I do interview a lot of people, scientists, doctors, and in general – pressed, there'll be a long pause, and they'll say, no, I, mm-hmm. I don't believe in God. And I guess it's that group that's not so pleased, eh? Mm, no, I'm not, I'm not sure it's that. I mean, the, um, I think someone can, can certainly be uh, agnostic or an atheist uh, and accept that there's something yet to be learned about consciousness that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with God. I, I expect, for example, that if you, if you simply traced the meaning of spirituality over time, you, you would find that the, uh, the, originally it was uh, elemental spirits, you know, and, and other kinds of concepts that uh, we someday may be able to actually figure out what they are in a scientific way. Uh, the whole history of science has been taking superstitions and uh, ideas that are considered metaphysical or occult and slowly beginning to piece together a rational framework for understanding these things. That's right. Isn't it almost the ultimate goal of science, one would think, to either prove or disprove what most people take as a matter of faith? I'm not sure I'd put it in that way. I would, I would say more that the, the goal of science is to increase our knowledge about uh, who and what we are and the world that we live in. Yes, but that path uh, inevitably leads, for example, a very good example is looking at the instant of creation. Mm -hmm. If we look and discern what that instant of creation really was, we probably either underscore uh, everybody's faith or, you know, push some holes in it. Um, I think it would actually support people's faith. Because there certainly are some uh, very well-trained scientists, including physicists, who are also extremely religious, and they have a very strong faith. And mm-hmm. their faith is bolstered by what they learn in physics, because they, they would marvel at the amazing complexity and order that appears in the world. So I, I have plenty of, of science, uh, scientists who are uh, colleagues and friends who are very religious, and they don't see any incom- incompatibility between their faith and what science is learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned in your book, I think one chapter, it, it says here, uh, a link between the atomic bomb and clairvoyance. Mm. Um, explain that one. All right. Uh, let's see. There's this guy named Sir J.J. Thompson at mm. Cambridge University, who, among other things, was the one who 
measured the electron for the first time and got the Nobel Prize for it. He hired a man named Francis Aston as an assistant. And Aston, uh, also a physicist, had read a book in 1908 called Occult Chemistry. And that book was written by the uh, theosophists Annie Besant and Charles Leadbeater. So these are two clairvoyants who, in their clairvoyant vision, described the structure of the atom by shrinking themselves down in, in their, their mind to be able to, to literally look at an atom and, and draw it. Uh, and one of the things that they drew was what they called a new form of, of the element neon, which they called meta-neon, because it wasn't quite like what they imagined neon was supposed to be. And they said that this meta-neon had an atomic weight of 22.33. So Aston read this. Uh, some years later, four years later, Aston actually discovered a substance at that atomic weight while analyzing neon gas. Wow. He also called it meta-neon, after what the theosophists had said, and he presented it in a paper to the uh, British Association for the Advancement of Science. Later, his discovery was called an isotope, and he then got the Nobel Prize for discovering isotopes, namely elements that could have too many electrons. Uh, it became a key discovery about atomic... Uh, structure, which many years later became absolutely central in the development of the atomic bomb. If there weren't isotopes, you can't have an atomic bomb. That's right. So this this is a case where uh, if it wasn't for the, uh, the the clairvoyant description of metaneon, uh, Aston may not have discovered isotopes, in which case we won't have atomic bombs. <laughs> All right. Also this, uh, and I'm really, really interested in this, toward the end of your book, you have a drawing. I, of course, Joe, uh, Joe McMonagall is a remote viewer. I've interviewed him uh, any number of times here on the program. And we've talked many times about not just remote viewing, but remote influencing. Now, I guess right now we think of a single mind as, I, I don't know, not that strong an influence on anything, uh, perhaps able to influence uh, a non-random computer or something like that. But that's about it. Not as you point out earlier, pointed out earlier, move you know to move mountains or something like that. However, there is a drawing of a mind amplification device. Um, and now, can you explain what such a device? Do you believe it to be? possible, and if so, can you explain how it might work, how it might be constructed? Well, this is part of a, a long-term project on uh, looking at the role of intention in the behavior of physical systems. Uh-huh. If it turns out that mind and matter are actually connected in some way, which I believe the evidence suggests it is, mm-hmm. uh, then inconceivably it should be able to be possible to use that to do various tasks. I mean, like the, the, the uh, a silly task would be to create a psychic garage door opener. Hmm. But nevertheless, a, a task like that, where you have the, you have a intention-operated switch. Mm-hmm. So what kind of a physical system would become the detector of this intention? And by the way, it only makes sense if it can somehow be tuned to an individual because otherwise everybody would be opening your garage door. That's right. In addition, it, also, it has to be able to discriminate between a, a frivolous thought and a thought in which you really mean it. 
So there has to be some degree of intelligence in terms of, of the detector of the intention. So I didn't know how to build one of these, and I uh, had the opportunity to work with Joe uh, for about a year in which, um, as, as you may know, the way that Joe works is he doesn't, he doesn't want to know anything in advance because otherwise it will tend to bias what he says. Right. So uh, I simply uh, targeted him on future technologies that did this. A future technology, not too far in the future because they wouldn't understand it, but uh, more like prototypes of working intention switches uh, that I wanted him to then draw. And so he did this. He, he, uh, I have a, a large file full of uh, drawings and descriptions of technologies which are in the near-term future in which um, these intention switches are, are being made. All right. That would require not only a, a discerning receiver uh, to activate a switch. It would also re- require perhaps uh, some kind of amplification device or what we would think of as a, a transmitter to aid the brain in transmitting a stronger signal. Yes? Uh, not so much on the brain side. Uh, it's okay. more on, on the receiving side. The, uh-huh. the, the detector itself um, takes advantage of uh, quantum properties and ways of manipulate, manipulating the results of quantum events uh, in slightly new ways. All right, so, question. Uh, would, the, would the receiver, uh, uh, Dr. Radin, be tuned to the transmitter or the human brain simply by some prior association? Uh, at least in these prototype devices, uh, my understanding of, of what Joe has written is that it would have to be trained in the same way that uh, a voice recognition system might need to be trained. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So so there is an association that's formed, right. much like uh, with, with IBM, uh, and then from that point forward, you would essentially be tuned, the, the receiver would be tuned to that particular brain. Well, yes, yes to the brain, but more towards the intention itself. It's not the brain so much as the mind, the, the mind of the intender. Yeah. All right. You All know, right. Intention. It, let me let me stick for just one moment with intention. Uh, I interview people like uh, Evelyn, Dr. Evelyn Paglini. She is a witch. And uh, when I have her on the program, uh, Dr. Radin, she talks all the time about how uh, the importance of intention. Mm-hmm. You know, they make all kinds of claims that a witch can do this or a witch can do that or actually cast a spell on somebody and that it's all wrapped around intention. And I'm sure this is something that mainstream, you know, science certainly scoffs at a lot. But it sure is in the same ballpark, if you'll pardon the expression, as what you've been talking about tonight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, intention, intention and attention seem to be the key. Uh, that's true. Uh, when you look at the, uh, say, Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, written over 5,000 years ago, uh, the whole process of meditation is essentially an attention training process. And uh, the, the wisdom of uh, the yogic masters basically said that if you learn to train your attention... To a certain degree, uh, eventually you, you're, you learn how to calm your mind and your body becomes calm. That's like stage one. The second stage is you begin to run in the clairvoyance. 
when you mm-hmm. are su- sufficiently have a, a still a still enough mind, you run into clairvoyance. When you get further down the line, you begin not only to adjust your attention, but you begin to put a little bit of intention in it as well. And it's at that stage where you start to get claims of things like levitation and invisibility and the other so-called cities. So in the laboratory, at least, we haven't gotten to the point where we're able to see those kinds of effects. But we do ask people to apply their attention and intention, and that's where we get interesting effects in both distant healing and with random number generators. Mm-hmm. Is there any difference between um, Art Bell getting uh, several million people to concentrate on one particular outcome, whether related or whatever it might be, and uh, and and a, and, a, and a group of people praying? Um, see, here we go again. We're, we're beginning to get back to religion a little bit. But is there any difference between this this intent work that we're doing and prayer? Uh, there's the two general categories of prayer. One is uh, you intend for something to happen. It's, it's you, you wishing. The other one is uh, thy will be done type of prayer, mm-hmm. in which case you're, you're wishing for the greatest good for all without having a specific outcome in mind. And people who do distant prayer, uh, for healing in particular, oftentimes will say that the thy will be done prayer seems to work better then uh, I, I wish this to happen. Is there any science to support that? Uh, not too much yet. In- okay, well, I know there, there's been a whole bunch of experiments done that claim that uh, uh, prayer with intent for somebody to heal uh, has been shown again and again and again to honestly work compared to a, a random sample. The clinical trials are actually, the jury is out, I would say. Uh, okay. uh, some of the studies have worked. There are two large studies recently, one at Duke University and one at Harvard University, that did not work. Uh-huh. Uh, there there are, are hand-waving uh, explanations, perhaps, as to why they didn't work, but the fact is that professional prayers were told to pray for certain people, and they did not get significantly better. And in fact, at the study in Harvard, the people who were being prayed for and they were told that they were being prayed for, they did significantly worse. So wow. the jury is out when it comes to um, praying for health. But when you come into the laboratory under much better controlled conditions, uh, the jury is in when it comes to whether or not one person's intention can affect another person's physiology. And the answer to that is yes. The answer to that is yes. So we, we don't know yet how to get from... Uh, one person intending towards another's physiology to uh, praying for somebody else's health outcome. That, that's still uh, that's a leap we don't know how to do yet. Hmm. God, this is such a, a fascinating field. Um, and again, you know, you, you made that statement about communications already being mainstream. That it's, You see, I, I, I just didn't know that. I had no idea that anybody was actually using quantum technology to attempt secure communication of any, any kind. And you're saying that's mainstream. I oh, sure would love to know what's going on. Yeah, it's big. I'm sure you can find a guest who will uh, talk your ear off on that one. Can you suggest somebody? Um, uh, let, me, let me work on it a little bit. All right. I'd appreciate anything in the field. I had no idea that was going on, and certainly I don't 
I don't believe it's been talked about on this program. Mm -hmm. I can imagine that it would work, but I had no idea that it was working. Yeah, it is working. (laughs) Um, That's something that our intelligence agencies certainly would be all over. Uh, If you can imagine communication with no key whatsoever, no possibility of interception, no possibility of decryption, that's just mind-blowing. They are the main funders of this research. Yep. Well, of course. Wow. <laughs> I, I learn something on this program all the time. Um, is it the, uh, do you happen to know who's doing the main funding? Is it CIA, NSA? Who's doing this? You name it. They're all funding it. <laughs> They're all funding it, huh? Yep. Uh, are we leading the world? Do you happen to know, Dr. Uh, Raiden, in this, in this uh, field, or are we playing catch-up? I think we're probably on par although um, most of the basic research is coming out of Europe on this. Uh, when it comes to, the, to where we are in terms of technology, I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not an expert enough in that area to know. But when you look in, uh, in um, journals like Science and Nature and Physical Review and the other main journals, a lot of the, the basic research is coming out of Europe on quantum technologies. Worrisome, actually. Uh, when you look at other areas of science, the United States, because of our, you know, we're, we're a Christian nation. There's no doubt about it. And, for example, in genetic research, we've drawn a lot of lines in the sand uh, that we're not allowing people to pass. In Europe, uh, they're readily going across those lines. Mm-hmm. I, I guess it doesn't necessarily... Um, hit this field, but uh, it's hitting other fields of science, and, is, and Europe is going nuts. And it is definitely hitting the field that I'm in as well. Oh, is it? Uh, yeah. In the United States today, there is not a single active academic lab left. Not one. So the Princeton lab is, is basically in retirement now. There are no other laboratories that are devoted to this topic in the United States within academia. There are a handful of professors who are interested and, in a few cases, teaching courses. But that's quite different than a laboratory. The whole thing is in Europe now. God. All right. Hold, hold on. We're at the top of the hour. Uh, Dr. Dean Radin is my guest. And you are now welcome to line up on the lines because we're going to open the lines and allow you to ask Dr. Radin questions. My God, if you don't have questions after hearing all of this, you just have not been listening. From... Uh, the high rise <laughs> located in Southeast Asia, specifically Manila, Philippines. I'm Art Bell. This is Coast to Coast AM. Worldwide, indeed. Uh, good evening, good morning, good afternoon, whatever it may be. It certainly is my honor and privilege to be escorting you through the weekend, and what a great weekend this has been. Kind of a nice welcome back. Dr. Dean Radin is my guest, and it just simply does not get any more fascinating than this. There's no question about it. My God, this is fascinating stuff. Entangled Minds uh, is the doctor's new book, and I heartily suggest that you make your way to Amazon one way or the other and collect it for yourself quickly, because I have a feeling this is our future one way or the other. So in a moment, we're going to open the phone lines, and it's all you and Dr. Dean Radin. I'm Art Bell. Once again, Dr. Dean Radin. I'm Art Bell. Hi there. 
Uh, Doctor, I, just before we begin on the lines here, mm-hmm. I would like to say to you that, look, um, even though I'm not doing presently doing these experiments, if you decide that you would like to try some kind of controlled experiment, I am at your disposal. Okay, that's a very generous offer, and I will keep it in mind. Please do. Uh, I'm, I'm sure, I guess you're kind of cautious the way I am with regard to these experiments. Um, you, in fact, you sound every bit as cautious as I am, if not more so. Is that so? Uh, I have a healthy respect for what we're dealing with, yes. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's go to the phones and see what people have to say. Uh, Wildcard Line, you're on the air with Dr. Dean Radin and Art Bell. Hi. Hey, greetings from Las Vegas, Nevada, Art. It's BD from LV. Hey, um... You know, as far as Dean goes, man, it's like, from what he's saying, you know, with with this project, 51 Hits, it seems like that we're transmitting something from our brains, which may potentially lead us to believe that the mind-brain system can act as a transmitter-receiver of particular waveforms and affect these random number generators. And, you know, it it goes back to... uh, the pineal gland, the Hindus, and, you know, you know, the, the, the pineal gland started producing DMT at 48 days. 48 days, 3,000 years ago, stated that the uh, that's when the reincarnation started taking place. And, you know, we're starting to verify all these things here in the 90s. I mean, are, are we getting to a tipping point, I guess, is my question. Okay, uh, a tipping point. Uh, are we at some kind of tipping point, uh, Dean? Hmm. A tipping point. Yeah, I know. I didn't quite grasp that fully myself. But, yeah. you know, some kind of turning point where we're, um, I, I guess that's almost fair to say. I mean, with what you've, for example, I note that uh, it's been some time since you and I talked. And the first time we talked and the second time, Dean, you were very, very tentative about a lot of this. This mm-hmm. time, I listen to you carefully, and you're not as tentative as you were. Well, we have a lot more data. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it basically all comes down to what is the data trying to tell us, and the data has continued to compound in such a way that the possibility that it's a mistake or a chance is is becoming vanishingly small. So uh, something 300,000 to 1, that's vanishingly small, all yeah, right. Yeah, it'll still fluctuate uh, here and there. You know, it'll go up and down a little bit, but it's it's pretty much continually been going in the direction where at some point we have to entertain some other hypothesis. Let's put it that way. Something else is going on. Okay. Uh, let's move east of the Rockies. Uh, you're on the air with Dr. Dean Radin and Art Bell. Hi. Hello. This is Jacob from Chinook, Kansas. Yes. How you doing, Art? Just Dean. fine, Jacob. Mm-hmm. Pleasure to speak with you guys. Um, my question is... Um, in National Geographic, they had an article about the Mayan 2012 calendar and how they speak on the change of our consciousness in that turn because we're coming to a 25,000 and 5,000 year celestial event. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you've studied or looked into any of that. Uh, I've, I've read a, a book or two, but uh, I'm, not, I'm certainly not an expert in that area. Uh, the only thing which actually is is relevant to the the uh, work that I've studied is the possibility that there is something peculiar about the galactic center in relationship to psychic ability, and and that was actually a major surprise uh, even to the person who discovered it. Um, and the discovery basically says that when the 
Uh, it has to do with the local sidereal time and psi performance in, in laboratory tests. Um, okay, well, what about this? Uh, the Mayan calendar, of course, ends in 2012. And uh, on this program and any other program like it, we get endless references to 2012. So there is an expectation out there, Dr. Radin, that mm-hmm. something's, something's going to happen in 2012. Uh, if you look at this whole consciousness thing, that may turn into some intent that will cause something to happen in 2012. Mm-hmm. Any worry about that? Uh, there's always some worry that, that there's a self-fulfilling prophecy that goes on. Yeah. But on the other hand, think about all of the concern about Y2K. And Y2K came and went without a hitch. Mm-hmm. Now, there was, there was a lot of, of work in the computer business to make sure that it wasn't going to be a problem. But uh, in this particular case, I wouldn't be too surprised if 2012, uh, December 21st, is it, if it comes and goes without a hitch also. Turns out to be another uh, Y2K. Right. We can hope that. Uh, a lot of people do not realize the billions of dollars that were spent. They, they, they went and said, oh, what a total non-event. Well, one of the reasons it was a non-event was a lot of people did a whole lot of work and spent a whole lot of money to make it so. That's right. Um, yeah. For so 20, anyway. For 2012, uh, there, there's nothing that we can do to prevent the alignment that is predicted to take place, in which case uh, maybe, maybe it won't be like Y2K. Cross fingers. Uh, west of the Rockies, you're on the air with Dr. D- uh, Dean Radin and Art Bell. Hi. Hi, this is John in Seattle. Hi, John. Uh, when Mr. Radin was on uh, back on May 4th, uh, it was my first uh, uh, knowing that uh, there were these random generator eggs. Right. And uh, I had in the back of my head kind of a desire to see if I could uh, affect these generators. Mm-hmm. And, you know, really sparked an experience in my head. Uh, about three days, I'm guessing, after he was on, probably about 1 a.m., plus or minus, I'd been to the bathroom after break, and uh, I came back to my table where I take notes, and... Instead of sitting down, I just turned and put one hand on the table. And it's like my consciousness turned a little bit, and I found myself like standing in the head of a giant entity, and the earth came out of his chest, and the word one flowed from his mouth across the earth. <laughs> well, that's, that's quite an experience. I, I have no idea what it means in the larger scheme of things, but it's an interesting experience. Uh, there is, I suppose, one thing somebody could do. Uh, Dr. Radin, uh, it's possible to go to Google. I guess you could tell everybody how to go see the eggs, but if you go and you put in Princeton a space eggs, it'll get you there. You'll eventually, you'll eventually see them. Would it be possible, uh, are the eggs now marked geographically? Do we know where each one is? Oh, yeah. Yep. Are they actually marked uh, on, on the screen display that you get? Uh, not on the, the, the screen display I think you're talking about is a, an overall display of uh, exactly. beha- behavior around the world. But there right. is a, a map that you can see where they're coming from All right. if you go a little bit deeper into it. Okay. I guess what I'm asking is, could you go to the egg that is most regional for you 
and sit there and have a little fun and try to affect that particular egg. No, no, you, you no. can't get you can't get feedback like that uh, in real time. Okay. All right. All right, I just thought I'd ask. Uh, there is, of course, that computer program we've referenced uh, previously on this program that I have that I absolutely love, the one in which you can bring down a, oh, I don't know, a picture of the earth, for example, and then random noise on the other side and try to get either the random noise or the earth to materialize. And um, I, I wish there was a way to get that distributed uh, uh, to to more people. Is there, by the way? Is, it, is that still available? Do you I know? Don't, I don't think it's still available. Uh, I can give a plug to uh, a company that just came out with a, a new experiment. Um, it's it's called Cygenics. I'm not affiliated with these folks at all, but it's an interesting site. It's P-S-I-G-E-N-I-C-S, Cygenics.com. And it's uh, it actually is a, a random number generator that runs in software. And the fellow who developed it uh, has a patent for for this process an interesting patent. So he's created uh, what amounts to a similar experiment like you'd find at the Pear Lab, but you can download it and run it on your PC. Uh-huh. How cool is that? All right, I'll be on that as soon as I'm done here. First time caller line, you're on the air with Dr. Dean Radin and Art Belheim. Yes, hello. How are you gentlemen doing? Quite well, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I have a theory to add to the discussion of mass conscious and... Sure. Um, if it is, in fact, an energy like we think of other energies. Um, you were talking earlier a bit on the localization of these random generators and if they, in fact, uh, or after, <laughs> if, in fact, the phenomenon that is going on is that. But uh, you guys pretty much have stated it, but I believe um, this energy, this mass-conscious energy, undergoes um, an inverse square law. Um, like how light energy is more prominent at its source and it spreads out and dissipates at greater distances. And uh, uh, I don't, I've, I don't think that's true, uh, Doctor. You know, in a traditional uh, transmitter, like a AM or an FM transmitter, what that caller said is certainly true. It's mm-hmm. it's very very strong at the source, and then spreads out and becomes measurably. Uh, weaker as it covers more geography. That does not seem to be true, or does it? In- well, it's an interesting question because there there is some evidence that uh, these effects drop off with distance. And oh, I actually, really? Yeah, I, I actually uh, discussed that evidence in Entangled Minds because uh, while it is very clear that something like remote viewing can work over distance of the planet, uh, well, radio can work across the distance of the planet as well. You know, the, yes. there are ways of getting signals in very far distances. And That's the fact is that we really haven't tested the the non-locality beyond uh, from about here to halfway to the moon, which is about as far as we've gone when Edgar Mitchell did a test from the, uh, coming back from the moon. Correct. So uh, th- there, there's a couple of experiments looking at distance and while it's not exactly inverse square, there does appear to be a decline. Huh. Okay, well, that would suggest, uh, if true, that it is kind of like uh, RF in a sense, that um, it does dissipate with distance, and that would also, I don't know, it seems to me, it would, it would suggest to me that uh, it is using a specific medium in which to communicate. This is a surprise. Uh, what you're saying right now is a gigantic surprise to me. I didn't expect that. I thought that, that across time and distance, there was no discernible uh, 
um, lessening of the uh, of, of this. I'm going to call it a signal. I don't mm-hmm. know if that's right or wrong, but it, what, whatever. It is also true that, uh, at least within the experiments on precognition, that there is a fall off in accuracy with increased time. So both <laughs> in time and space, uh, the uh, assumption for a long time was that this is completely non-local and that it, it is the same everywhere. But uh, in looking, I've sifted through the data pretty significantly to, to see if I could find evidence that, uh, for that or against it. And to my surprise, too, I found that there actually is some reason to believe that uh, there, it does drop off, which is great because it means that there's, there's a way to get a handle on what's happening physically. That's exactly where I was going to be going. In other words, some way to measure its frequency or the medium uh, uh, through which this communication is occurring. Uh, ultimately, it, it would say that, wouldn't it? That's right. It may be, however, in the case of precognition, that the reason for a drop-off is because of the branching probabilities that occur. From you know, like from one one second from now, the the uh, the world is very likely to be the same. Ten seconds from now, if you try to predict it, it's going to be a little bit different. Two hours from now, it's going to be extremely different. And the reason for these differences is because at each stage, if you imagine every atom could go in any different direction... There are various possibilities. That's right. And so the, the future simply becomes a much more probabilistic mush as the further out you go. And by the same token, the, the reason for the inverse square law is basically the geometry. It's a geometric issue. If you imagine uh, signals spreading out like, like a sphere... The signal is dropping off because the surface of the sphere keeps getting bigger and bigger. And so there may be something like that, maybe a geometric way of thinking about how these things work. Well, as you throw a rock into the water, you get a ripple. And that ripple, of course, as it approaches the shore, if it's a pretty good distance, begins to dissipate. Same idea? Um, yeah, and also the height of the ripple. Uh, the height of the ripple is the largest where the rock went in. That's right. And then the, the amplitude of the ripple will uh, dissipate because of friction and inertia and things of that sort. Uh, that one is a little, somewhat less, has, has less to do with the geometry of the situation and more to do with physical, um, physical forces that impede it. I don't okay. think there, we're gonna, there's something like that that's happening here, but it's more that there may be a geometrical reason why uh, these effects drop off. All right. Um, Wildcard Line, you are on the air with Dr. Dean Radin and Art Bell. Hi. Hi. Good uh, afternoon in your time zone. Good afternoon. <laughs> yes. Um, Mr. Radin, uh, I was wondering if you really knew about the experiments in the Soviet Union where they used a electrocephalogram, which is basically a medical device to read microvolts off the human mind, which doctors use, mm-hmm. like a oscilloscope for the mind. And what they did is they put on a female adult, and uh, put her in one location, and then thousands of miles away, they put her child in another location. They induced pain into that children by a little pinprick, and her and the mother registered on the scope as feeling the pain of the child. Now, this is thousands of miles in distance where they conducted this test, mm-hmm. and what was really weird about the test is not only that she read the pain, she felt the pain in her mind of the child being influenced with pain, but it was the, the, the speed and what was registered was faster than the speed of light. So the mind is actually transferring and receiving information quicker than the speed of light, which really is quite curious to me because um, <laughs> Einstein's theory is sort of blows that out of the water, mm-hmm. if that's true. But we're all somehow connected. They did this with animals, too, as well. They took a small uh, a newborn of one animal. I think it was a rabbit, I believe. 
and they separated into to an animal, and again, the mother that produced that offspring registered on the EEG as feeling inducing a pain. Mm-hmm. It's been experienced. So, with with that in mind, I mean, um, your machines could be picking up um, uh, not only human, but maybe a, a, a economic disaster in, in the ocean where maybe animals are are dying in mass numbers. We have mass extinctions happening on this planet in certain areas, and uh, you'd be picking up those vibes too as well if we have a mass uh, killing of some species due to environmental catastrophes and stuff. I suppose it it could be, Doctor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there there's a um, maybe twenty studies looking at these EEG types of experiments where two people are monitored and uh, you do some sort of stimulus on one and measure what's happening at the other. And most of these mm-hmm. experiments have worked. It's true. Exactly. And w- what about his reference to the uh, uh, the fact that it's? I- I'm not sure that they've actually measured it, but is it in fact? Uh, faster than the speed of, of light? Well, I think what he's referring to is that uh, sometimes the signal is uh, seen in the receiver's brain or in their body before it actually occurs for the sender. Uh, well, case, that certainly would be faster than the speed of that light. That would require some that. sort of superluminal signaling. And by the way, uh, at this physics conference that I was at at the University of San Diego, uh, for forever, basically, physicists have said that it's impossible to do superluminal signaling uh, because of something called Eberhard's theorem. It's a theorem which says you can't do this. Right. And yet uh, a physicist there made, made a presentation saying uh, he thinks there may be a way to get around Eberhard's theorem and actually get a, a superluminal signal that goes backwards in time by 50 microseconds. And that blew us away because this is a mainstream physicist making a prediction that uh, could be tested. Oh, my God. All right, uh, Doctor, hold on. Dr. Dean Radin is my guest. I'm Art Bell from Manila in the Philippines. This has been, is one fascinating program. Uh, whether it's one millisecond or 50 milliseconds, if it's sent, <laughs> good Lord, if it's actually sent before the occurrence, then everything, just everything we know or we thought we knew about the laws of the universe in which we live is absolutely incorrect. We'll be back. I suppose even the white bird alone in her cage is expressing intent, right? The intent to be free, to fly or die. That's certainly intent. I don't know that uh, a bird has the same form of consciousness that we do, but I've long suspected it to be possible. My guest is Dr. Dean Rayton. We're talking about the experiments uh, that have gone on at Princeton. We're talking about his work, and of course he's got a book, and I heartily suggest that you buy it. It's called The Conscious Universe. You can go to uh, Amazon.com, probably your ultimate destination, and get it again called The Conscious Universe, something you want to investigate right away. Dean Radin will be back in a moment. Once again, Dr. Dean Radin. Uh, Dr. Radin, mm-hmm. I'm going to ask this. Uh, I think I know the answer, but I'm going to ask on behalf of Adam in Alabama anyway. He asks uh, a question for Dr. Radin. Does he know of any schools actively working on these topics that, well, might perhaps be looking for some grad students? Thank you. Well, there 
there are two universities, um, Gary Schwartz, of course, at the University of Arizona in Tucson, has a small program on mediumship research, and Bruce Grayson at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville has a program on uh, survival research, including things like reincarnation and near-death experience. But that's, that's it as far as I know. Well, that's sad. Well, there, I mean, there are other locations like uh, the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology and there's Saybrook Institute, both of which are in Northern California. Um, but if, if uh, someone's looking to be a graduate student and essentially become an apprentice and have mentors that can show them how to do things in the laboratory, there is no place, not in the United States. That now, is sad. In, uh, in England and Scotland, there are a half a dozen universities with multiple faculty and multiple graduate students. I'm talking about the University of Edinburgh in particular and also the University of Northampton in England. So then even as an inquiring student, you might have to end up going to Europe is the answer. Most students who are interested in this do end up in Europe, yes. All right. On the international line, you're on the air with Dr. Dean Radin and Art Bell. Good morning or whatever. <laughs> Morning, Art. Uh, morning, Dr. Radin. Um, I did some experiments way back when for uh, downhole tools, you know, for oil wells, and we used neutron detectors and gamma ray detectors, and it was a prototype, and I was the only one that could make it work. Uh, we were just measuring a measurement of the difference between chlorine and hydrogen uh, using, you know, a neutron source. Every time I walked up to it, it would work. Others, it didn't work. You know, everybody else is just, you know, tearing their hair out because, you know, uh, the thing wouldn't work. It's like the opposite of Murphy's Law. Uh, no, when you stick things down hole, you're sticking it in Murphy's mother's kitchen oven. So, and Hey, listen, I, you, you, listen, how about this? Uh, how about cold fusion? Now, there's an interesting example. I think Pons and Flashman, they went, ended up going to Europe, but uh, a number of universities tried to get cold fusion to work, and in some cases, uh, they did get it to work, but in many other cases, they didn't. And one almost has to wonder if intent didn't have something to do, do with the whole thing. Well, with the tools that we were working with, um, you know, we were just basically detecting different speeds of neutrons and ratios of them. Right. Uh, but for some reason, um, if somebody else tried to run this tool, it wouldn't work. And as soon as I walked up to it and said, you know, hey, what's wrong, little baby? And bang, you know, it would work. And um, I had PhDs tearing their hair out. Do you, are you good with other machines as well? Uh yeah, I'm good with electronics and the rest. Uh, sometimes I seem, it seems like at times I can make things work, you know, just by kind of, you know, you know, what's wrong? Oh, okay. And then all of a sudden, bang, it works, and everybody else just kind of, they don't know. Mm -hmm. um, doing a stint fixing TVs way back when in my apprenticeship, um, I had uh, guys that say, well, what's wrong with this TV? And he wouldn't know, and I'd kind of just walk by to go outside and have a smoke, and I'd just kind of, oh, look at this. And about half an hour later, he'd be cursing and swearing because that was exactly the problem. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, I, the, the moment he said that, the cold fusion thing popped into my mind, Doctor. Mm -hmm. uh, they really had a problem with that. The people, it seems, that really wanted it to work got results. The people who were in doubt or very skeptical uh, all bombed out. Mm -hmm. Well, if, uh, if the research on my matter interaction effects is true, and I believe it is true, uh, it suggests that intention plays a role in any experiment, every experiment. 
So uh, in the case of uh, having machines work and not work, there's this famous uh, anecdote about uh, Wolfgang Pauli, the famous uh, quantum physicist, who was known as being uh, one of the top uh, theorists in the world, but he had a reputation that whenever he came near a laboratory, no experiment would work. Things would break. Uh-huh. And so there's there's both people who have the equivalent of a, of a green thumb and people who have the equivalent of a black thumb when it comes to equipment. And in this case, the, the caller uh, apparently had a green thumb. Uh-huh. No, that's so true. Uh, it really is true. Something we don't understand, but your field may impart an understanding in all of this soon enough. East of the Rockies, you're on the air with Dr. Dean Radin and Art Bell. Good uh, what morning. Hi, guys. Uh, David from Washington, D.C. Yes, David. Uh, I've got a couple questions, but the throwaway is uh, the attenuation effect makes me wonder the relationship to dark matter. But my real question uh, has to do with uh, your comment last night, Art, about uh, our being a warrior species. Mm-hmm. And the comment that Dr. Paglini made one time about uh, witches fighting it out uh, on Lammas night uh, during World War II. Yes. So my question for Dr. Radin is what happens when you have two groups that are diametrically opposed in their intention and they clash? Well, you have the Mideast. I, mean, I don't know. Dr. Radin, uh, any, any comments? Well, if we were able to visualize the intention itself, uh, I imagine it might look like something like waves or a distortion in the medium in which we live or something of that sort, like, like a disturbance in the force from Star Wars. Uh, ideally, they would, they would uh, cancel each other out, and so it, nothing would happen. Uh, but in the less than ideal case, they might uh, interfere in a constructive way and, uh, and create havoc. It, it would not be a pretty sight. Yeah, it wouldn't. Well, what's bothered me about this, Doctor, is that those in the world, for example, who really wish us ill and would plow airplanes into buildings or be willing to kill themselves to take some of us out or whatever, have a, an extremely strong intent. Mm-hmm. And, um, of course, we're just sort of whistling in the wind here, uh, going along hoping for no terrorism and, or no trouble, but the intent on the part of somebody who's willing to give their life uh, for their cause is going to be, strength-wise, much stronger than ours. That's probably correct. And the... Uh, the reaction to that is, um, I think, as someone said in the beginning of the Second World War, that once you awaken the sleeping tiger, mm-hmm. you're in trouble. So That's in other right. words, and if the intention of the United States is aroused and we become coherent, that's a massively powerful force. That's correct. Uh, unfortunately, the history of the United States becoming a tiger is not until we've been attacked and of course, uh, for example, Pearl Harbor being attacked was awful. It was horrible, but it wasn't the end of the world. Now we're beginning to get hold of these weapons that, when used, could conceivably be the end of the world. So right. by the time we, we, we make it to a dangerous point, that by the time we're actually attacked, it's, it's too late. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I hope not. Yeah, I hope not, too. Uh, West of the Rockies, you're on the air with uh, Dr. Dean Radin and Art Bell. Hi. Hi. Um, I had one question about, uh, does Dr. Radin believe that the, say, the prophet's predictions of, say, the Bible or the Koran or any other religious text 
would that have anything to do with the events that are happening now? And I think you just kind of covered that a little bit. But uh, like, say, uh, the profits predictions coming true because of people wanting the end of the world because of, you know, mm-hmm. say the promise, the, the prophecy of a promised land or, you know, after, you know, after the end of time, so to speak, they would, you know, be be promised, uh, you know, virgins or whatever. <laughs> you know, I don't know what I'm trying to say there, but uh, say enough people jumping into one religion or uh, an influence, would that influence the sea of consciousness, so to speak? No, I think like, it's a very good question. I think I know what you're talking about. I think the doctor does too. Doctor? Yeah, yeah I, the issue about very long-term precognition is a tricky one because uh, as I mentioned before, that uh, the, the from now until later, wherever, however long later is, uh, there's so many possible paths to get from here to there that it becomes very difficult to predict beyond a matter of a couple of days. On the other hand, if there is something like uh, a certain current of history that has a certain extremely strong endpoint to it, that it's conceivable that somebody uh, might be able to predict, even thousands of years ahead, something that has this very, very strong attractor at the end. Uh, In which case, you can make a plausibility case for why some prophets may have predictions of some important endpoint, but they may not actually get the interpretation of it right. In other words, they get that something very important is coming, but they don't know exactly what it's going to be. Um, remote viewers uh, like Joe McMonagle, are they are they using the same, for lack of a better word, ether, the same mode of transmission that uh, are that's ultimately received uh, by the eggs? Mm. Mm. We I, we don't know enough to be able to answer that question. It almost seems that way because they, of course, remote viewers claim that they can look and discern answers and things uh, without respect to time, past, present, or future. Yeah. The, the, the whole point of, of the book, Entangled Minds, is addressing the issue of what sort of medium is necessary in order to have remote viewing and mind-matter interaction and precognition and all of the other phenomena. What is necessary? And the conclusion of, of the book is basically that a classical sense, a classical universe, doesn't do it. You can't, you can't have any kind of psychic phenomena if you're dealing with a fixed space and fixed time, or absolute space and absolute time, a Newtonian type of world. You need a different kind of underlying world in order to support these phenomena. And the world that looks like it's, uh, it's compatible with psi is the holistic environment that, is, that quantum mechanics suggests and some experiments now begin to show. So in a holistic medium, the one way of thinking of it uh, is that the, as though we live in this gigantic bowl of jello in which everything actually is all connected, like the old concept of an ether, in a sense. Sure. And if a disturbance uh, actually occurs in the ether, it ripples out. It'll ripple through the whole thing, and everything is affected. So the only difference here is that with, for uh, intention becomes a ripple, and it affects the entire universe. And vice versa, the entire universe is also affecting you back. So that's the kind of model that is both 
compatible with physics as we know it and becomes compatible with these kinds of consciousness phenomena. Uh, if only we had the eggs working back uh, prior to World War II and Hitler and we could have looked at all of that, uh, if only. Uh, first time caller line, you're on the air with Dr. Dean Radin and Art Bell. Hi. Hi, how are you? Um, my name is Matthew, and first of all, before I get to my question with Dr. Radin, I want to speak for just one second to all the aspiring graduate students out there. Ladies and gentlemen, I feel your pain, but there are more graduate programs out there than you think. Um, you just have to get creative in finding a quote, and I hope you'll forgive me, mainstream, more common um, you know, graduate program and getting them to fund your fancy ideas. So, um, for example, I'm driving across the country on my way to medical school, and I'm going to start an MD-PhD program in neuroscience. And I picked a school that has a very good neuroimaging program. Now, I'm probably going to do my PhD work and get my training in, you know, interventional, interventional radiology, really trying to increase the resolution of, you know, how we can resolve, you know, signals in the brain. But I've been working towards the things that you've been talking about, Dr. Radin, since for better or for worse, since I was probably 14 or 15 years old, and I really started thinking about this stuff. But there really are ways out there where you don't have to just bang DARPA for funding, which is what I did for the last couple of years before I managed to get into a different program. Mm -hmm. um, which brings me to my question for, for Dr. Radin. Um, so I've already touched on it a little bit. If we're going to figure out how consciousness is affecting anything, or if there is a way that consciousness is affecting things on a larger scale, I feel like we need a better idea of what consciousness is. Mm -hmm. And in order to kind of quantify how, you know, a thought or an intention, so to speak, can actually affect something in, in any level and how we can, you know, if we've got some kind of random generating quantum device that we can, you know, statistically study and say, oh, well, something is definitely happening. Well, how can we demonstrate that impulse on an individual personal level? I want to work on that stuff. And I'm hoping that you can offer me some insight as I move forward and, start thinking about the things I want to study in the next, I don't know, 10, 15 years, um, on where, where you think the actual affect might be, or if you have any, you know, insight to that. Uh, these are all very good questions, and actually I completely agree with your strategy. Uh, get a, uh, mainstream degrees and mainstream topics and tune the, uh, your dissertation or thesis work towards this area. Because while there, there are a lot of uh, uh, scientists who don't want to deal with this area, in, in graduate school, it, there's a lot more flexibility on what you can actually study. And more and more scientists are becoming open to the possibility that there's really something interesting going on here. So that is a very good strategy. In terms of what to study, there are now uh, about a half a dozen studies looking at functional MRI to localize in the brain uh, through the, uh, oxygenated blood uh, where these effects are actually occurring. Uh, I talk about some of them in Entangled Minds, and there are other documents, other articles you can find. How, but, how much luck are we having with that? What are, what are we seeing in the brain? Are we beginning to center on the areas that are being affected? Yes, yes. The, I mean, for, for presentiment effects, these are unconscious um, prediction effects. If the upcoming target is an emotional target, then the amygdala of the brain lights up, and you can see it in the fMRI. Uh, if you have a, an experiment where you have two people isolated and you stimulate one with a light flash, mm -hmm. the occipital lobe of the receiver lights up. 
And this is extremely important to know because it gives us a clue as to what is happening on the receiving side of these forms of of signals. I put signals in quotes because we're not really dealing with signals, but uh, by looking in the brain and looking in brain functioning on the receiving side, uh, we we can begin to piece apart what is actually happening. And this is all new, new within the past five years. Doctor, this is so fascinating. We could go on and do show after show after show on it, and I'm sure we will, and I'm sure we'll have you back. It's been a wonderful night. Your book, The Conscious Universe, as well as Entangled Minds, Entangled Minds is the latest, right? Right. It's the one they should all be looking for at Amazon.com or whatever. I, you know, We're going to have to have you back. As I mentioned earlier, you were kind of tentative in the earlier interviews, but tonight... You've been a lot more specific, so obviously a lot has occurred in this field, even with the limited amount of study mm-hmm. that apparently has been going on, particularly in this country. There is a lot that's new. It's so exciting. I just cannot imagine that more – obviously people are attracted to it, but there, there's not more money pouring into it. And um, I, I guess if somebody's really interested, they can – is there a way to contact you? Uh, the easy way is uh, dean at noetic, N-O-E-T-I-C, dot org. Dean, dean at, at noetic, dot org. Right. Is that right? That's right. So if somebody's uh, got some money they want to pour into this, <laughs> no harm in asking. Send me an email. That, send you an email. And uh, you're obviously out front on all this. So, Dr. Radin, thank you for being on the program. Thank you for being such a light in the night. Thank you so much. Good night, my friend. All right, there is Dr. Dean Radin. And as you all know, this is uh, certainly one of my favorite topics in all the world. And after tonight, it's all the more my favorite. It has been my pleasure, my honor to be with you throughout this weekend. I look forward to doing the same next weekend and every weekend thereafter from all the way from Manila. Manila in the Philippines, Southeast Asia. It is amazing. It is a very small world. So from Manila, in the middle of a... uh, A rather large typhoon. Good night, all.